Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 816 with Ellis Winstanley. So to me, you start giving stuff away and you're telling people, look, I charge, I charge $5 for this, but it's really worth nothing. And you start telling people your product's not worth anything. In their eyes, it's not going to be worth anything. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Now, I know you know about Plate IQ, but do you know about Plate IQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Plate IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Plate IQ card. With Plate IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued easily. And I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and approval hierarchies. So to learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, get the Plate IQ card for 90 days free. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Restaurant owners know it could be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people, and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. 
What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but before we get started, just a quick reminder that this podcast needs your support, and there's a few ways you can do it. You can support our sponsors. If you support our sponsors, they continue to support the show. You can use our affiliate links. Just head over to the show notes page anytime there's a tool or service recommended and use the link. And if you can use that link, then sometimes we can even save you some money because we get special deals, but you're also supporting this podcast because we could get a kickback. And then share this podcast with everybody you know who's aspiring to be great. The mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. If we're going to transform the industry, more people need to be hearing these lessons and getting influenced by these leaders in the industry. So help help me get the word out there. So today we're talking with Ellis Winstanley and what a great way to pop off my trip to Texas talking to Ellis. And again, um, I shouldn't say again, cause this is the first time I'm saying it. I've said it so many times over the past couple of weeks when I was in Texas, but this is the first time you're hearing it. Thank you to the Texas restaurant association for inviting us to the uh, marketplace, the TRA marketplace, uh, where I have my own media stage and I was able to record these, uh, episodes. So just as a little nod to the TRA, uh, for their support. And I just, I got to recognize them. And the first interview I did when I was out there, uh, was with Ellis when Stanley and Ellis, man, uh, I don't know how he does it. This guy wears so many different hats and you'll see what I'm talking about in today's episode. Uh, but a little bit more about Ellis. He is I think he got into the industry at around the age of 18, as soon as he was old enough to bartend. And by the time he was 21, I think even sooner, he was the owner of his first restaurant, the Star Seed Cafe in Austin, Texas. Uh, he has since helped open and flip countless restaurants. I've kind of lost track of the amount of projects he was involved with. In and he got him, he made an, a name for himself for taking older legacy brands and turning them around. Uh, and we get into how he does that in today's episode. Today, he is the proprietor of El Arroyo, Cain and Abel's, uh, Abel's on the Lake, and he also wears the title of president for a number of companies, uh, the Gara construction service group, uh, the Marabu Marabau. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Marabu development group in Aztec promotional group. And then also the axial commerce, which is a, uh, a company you guys are going to want to keep an eye on because they are developing an enterprise operation or enterprise platform, uh, that exists to promote financial operational awareness. And that's, if you can just you know, help your team, see the big picture, help them get more financial operational awareness and, and gamify that that process of of just being in business and, and doing this work it's a, it's a tool that empowers your people so i'm really excited about watching what they that they do with axial commerce and we get into that towards the end of the interview so make sure you stick around for that and i guess with no further ado here it is ellis win stanley and with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, president of El Arroyo, Ellis Winstanley. Ellis, are you feeling unstoppable today? Yeah. Dude, I cannot wait to get into the story. And uh, I found you by way of Anna Taz. And thank you for this introduction, Anna. She has such great things to say about you. And after doing a little bit of research, like she said, he's doing so much. I was like, it can't be that much. And then I started diving in. And man, you, got, you wear a lot of hats. So I cannot wait to dive into your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, let's give it hell. Let's give it hell. Let's why give it hell. Why that? 
Uh, it's just get in there and get it done. Make it happen. Ain't nothing to it but to do it is what I like to say. And I should have mentioned before we really got into this that this is our first recording of the Texas Restaurant Association Marketplace 2021. We weren't here last year. Uh, we were going to be, but we had to cancel for obvious reasons. So this is the first trade show I was, I've been able to go to since the reopening of things. And I just want to say how excited I am to be here. And uh, thank you for the TRA for giving me the stage to connect with awesome Texas restaurant tours. It's going to be a good weekend, man. I'm excited. Are you excited? Yes, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it is pretty Awesome great. to have you here too. I'm happy to be here. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Uh, when, I mean, from my research, you go back to 18 years old, wearing a tie, walking down 6th Street, trying to find a bar job. Is that where it makes sense to start sharing the story? Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, well, so I guess a brief piece, but I grew up, I grew up working, doing construction work and stuff. And so I wanted to get, I wanted to keep working and uh, went to bartending school. Thought it was, it, it did not land me a bartending job right away, stunningly, but it did teach me a few things. And I um, started walking 6th Street looking for, looking for a job. Everyone said, no, 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 get out of, you know, you don't need an 18 year old kid in here. And then one guy finally, like probably the eighth or ninth time I went down there said, you can have a job if you can start tonight. And I was like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> He's like, no, go home and get presentable. <laughs> get that tie off you yeah, know right. and don't do that, that again around here i mean i think there's a lesson right there is that like sometimes it's just timing right place right time and the, the turnover oh, yeah. is so high in this industry like if you go to a place that you want to work at and they say no not right now go back in a week because somebody might have not shown up to their shift no doubt right i love that man so so you what was going through your mind at this time were you like i want this to be my career i want to be in food and beverage or were you just looking for a job right now Man, I just like having experiences. So I, I had, uh, I had grown, like I said, I'd grown up working. I'd, I'd been working since I was twelve, almost um, family stuff. And so I, I, uh, I just wanted to do something, and it yeah. looked like fun. I mean, well, you stuck around, man. So what was it about this industry that really drew you in, or were you working in the restaurant industry? Was that the family business? No, 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 no. I, I, uh, I just got started at this bar, and then, and then it was going out of business. I learned, I learned a lot of good lessons there. Yeah, okay. What not to do it. if you want to stay in business? Yeah, man. Like, what were some of the lessons? I mean, that's probably that's where most of our lessons come from. What not to do, right? So, yeah. reflecting back, we don't need to name names, but like re- reflecting back, what was some? What were the, what were those lessons? Um, well, I mean, there was so there was a lot of uh, the owners were one of the owners at least the one that I that I knew was would drink all the time in there and uh, do other stuff and. Uh, would end would end up um, sometimes passed out wearing an Easter Bunny costume. Oh man, with the sleeves ripped off, had little dangly pink strings hanging down, and the the hat strapped on uh, with the ears and all that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that's a, that's. Um, so, what were the things you guys would do in this scenario when when that would happen? Uh, like, was the business being run the way it was supposed to at that time? Like, what what kind of no, things happened when? No, when there was a lot of things happening that shouldn't have been happening. There was get into it. I mean, there was there was. Well, so there was there was always giving the football players free drinks, which was part of what you were supposed to do. But then that ends up bleeding over into giving other people yeah free drinks. I mean, it's a hard it's a hard line to set and then and then hold. Um, and uh, you know, employees see owners drinking and they drink and yep, it's smoke. Monkey and, see, monkey do, right? Like whatever yeah. you do is the reality of the culture of your business. No doubt, it's not what you say you are. It's what you are. It's it's how you show up, right? Totally. So I think that's the lesson right there. I'm curious. What was the strategy behind giving the football players free drinks? Is it because they brought a, the, the entourage? I get. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I remember. I remember some of them were were awesome. I always remember Chris Sims. You remember Chris Sims? No, I'm from New Hampshire. So. Okay, so he was he was a quarterback. <laughs> he was Phil Simpson. Yeah. He played at UT, and um, I always remember for the guys that wouldn't wouldn't take care of the bartenders. Chris would always come behind and. 
and then more than take care of everybody. That's uh, cool. He's, he was he was a steward of his team on and off the field. I love it. Um, he was a great guy. I mean, he he caught a lot of flack, you know, in during the season, right? But he was a fantastic person. Um, I'm sure he still is. But uh, anyway, yeah. No, there, I don't know what the I don't know what the motivation was. I've never found that yeah. discounting. So to me, you start giving stuff away, and you're telling people, "Look, I charge I charge five dollars for this, but it's really worth nothing." Yeah. And you start telling people your product's not worth anything. Yeah. In their eyes, it's not going to be worth anything. I do think there is a time and place to give things away, right? Uh, because essentially, what you're doing is you're trading value. So a great example of a time to give something away is when you're getting like an email address or a phone number, so sure. you have a direct line of communication. Because you're not giving it away, because that's a huge value for you to mm-hmm. have that line of communication. So there's a time and place for it. Or if you mess up and you want to show people that you're sorry, you know, there's a time and place to, to you know, swallow your mistakes and, and try to add some type of value to that person's life. Uh, can you think of any others? Examples? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's certain marketing programs that make sense like that. I think, yeah. I think just generally discounting, we try to stay away from it just because it's um, it's devaluing yeah. the product. But uh, but but yeah, I think I think as far as marketing stuff, like we gave away, we did at El Arroyo, we did a a launch with Yeti tumblers. We we had El Arroyo branded Yeti tumblers. I think and, we saw those. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the video, yeah, we gave away 200 of those with the free margarita token at the Yeti store when we announced we, we played this April Fool's joke where we went in the middle of the night with the Yeti staff and stole the sign and then put it on the El Arroyo I mean on the Yeti flagship store's patio and then kind of unveiled it the next morning and uh, and we, we told everybody it was stolen right okay and so so it got reappeared at Yeti and then we gave away the tumblers to introduce the product and, and then with that we gave a free margarita that kind of got people to come who hadn't otherwise been to the store and yeah that made, that made a lot of sense we think I love that so I'm curious so you, you're 18 at this point. What year is it? It's 1999. 1999. Two years later, yeah. from this point of your story, you own your first restaurant. Yeah. Bar. Yeah. Uh, so what happened between this point of not having any experience in the industry, getting your first job, to owning your first place? Like, how did you evolve in that two years? And especially and like once we get into actually the opening of your first place, um, I mean, are there people that we need to, to hover over? Are there the mentors you had, or like where did you get the lesson to be able to, or the lessons you needed, the, the experience you needed to open your first restaurant? Um, I wish I was smart enough to get mentors at that point. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I uh, no, so I, I that bar, um, you know, because of the passing out Easter Bunny activities and other things, ended up going out of business. Surprise! Shocking! Yeah. Went out of business. Wow, who would have thought? Uh, I think it was a nineteen thousand dollars tax bill, if I remember, and that needed to get paid, and yep. so the could have bought it for nineteen thousand. So I had, um, you know, whatever money I made bartending and hadn't spent at the time, which was probably a thousand dollars. Yeah, I was gonna so say. I, I tried to convince my folks to help me get a loan to buy it, and they said no. Go to college and finish college. <laughs> so. Uh, so I started working at a different place on Sixth Street, and then and then I was like, you know, I'd always either wanted to be in the military or or own a business, and I didn't even care what kind of business. I just something. Yeah. Um, and so I started uh, I started going to the recruiter's office, and I wanted to do one of the programs that a lot of the guys um, go to one of the academies want to do, and I wanted to go to officer candidate school, and it was peacetime, and I was didn't have a college degree, so they kept telling me no, and then I, I'd go back like every two weeks, and I was like, what about now? <laughs> And they'd say, okay, well, now you can go to the selection for that program, but you can't go to the, you know, officer candidate school. And I was like, all right, I'll see you another two weeks, right? And I kept doing it. And so finally I got them to, to, to 
I thought I had them where I wanted them, right? When I probably didn't, but I thought I, I felt like I did. And so anyway, I went home and told my folks I was dropping out of college to go to the military. And they said, we'll help you get a loan to buy a business. <laughs> and so I bought a 24-hour diner. Okay. It was all debt, 100% debt. It was losing about five grand a month. It was, it was a hot mess. So this is the debt. Um, this is the restaurant I already had. I had about 100 grand worth of debt. And you inherited well, that Well, no, no. The restaurant, the restaurant was losing about five a month. I had okay. to borrow money okay. just to just to pay enough to get it to to get it i mean they wanted out of it but it needed that much almost that much money they got a they got some and a little bit of it went to just make the thing survive so how did you know about this restaurant that was looking for an exit strategy it was like on a business broker okay list or something yeah and i think that is a great way and i'd been there once in the middle of the night and it was also wild as shit yeah. which is why i mean that is a great way to break into this industry is being someone's exit strategy because nine times out of ten they're almost willing to give it away because they just want to be done with it. They just want to be resolved with the, the, bad mis- the bad decision they made, right? Yeah. So what was it like? I mean, what was the cult? Like, take us to paint a picture of what this was, uh, Starseed, or still... Starseeds, yeah. You closed it in 2019, correct? Or did uh, you sell I didn't know. I, I sold it. 2019. Yeah, I sold it. I saw on LinkedIn it was 2001, 2019. So yeah. I was curious what happened there. Um, but back to 2001, like, paint a picture of what Starseeds Cafe was. And then how did you evolve and change the space or the culture or whatever, the business? Yeah, so so we actually tried not to change the culture, but Starseeds is a is a like artsy fartsy kind of punk rock twenty four hour diner, okay. dive diner. And it was it's it is like a super authentic Austin and it's changed a little bit since we sold it, but it was a super authentic, uh, just very, very grainy kind of place like five dollar breakfast plates yeah um and uh and yeah i mean it was very i mean you'd have like so robert rodriguez's recording studio is down the road and so in the middle of the night you get those guys tarantino and some of those guys yeah. in there sometimes and then you'd go and there'd always be so like I, I wouldn't recognize most celebrities if they were like standing right next to me yeah and so we go eat there and some people like oh my god that was and i was like i, I got nothing <laughs> i don't know i got nothing i, I get that um but it's it was one of those cool kind of underground type places and it was and it was really fascinating because it was so small. Yep. You get, you know, most shifts you'd have one cook, one waiter, and like a dishwasher busser, right? Yep. And so they all depended on each other. Um, and so it was almost like this little socialistic kind of like model that I've never, ever seen work in any other business before. Um, but it was just, it was a very cool So when you culture. wanted to hi- or hire, when you wanted to purchase this restaurant, uh, what was it about the restaurant that spoke to you that made you real think or feel it was going to be a good decision i mean i'd been there in the middle of the night i thought it was cool uh so it was just it, a good brand yeah it felt like it had cachet but i yeah. mean honestly i just wanted an opportunity i mean i could have been it could have been like a horse poop shoveling business i yeah i just didn't care i would have done anything so i just wanted a chance you said it was losing five thousand dollars a month yeah it was making it was it was getting further and further in debt every month by five thousand dollars every yeah month. R- roughly yeah so, obviously, that wasn't the case after you took over. I'm sure, like maybe immediately, it was still like that. But what I mean, did you turn it around? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to making money like in the second month. Well, how? So, I mean, there was some physical cleanup, which thank thanks to growing up doing construction, I was pretty capable of doing okay. most of it myself and with my brother and stuff and with my dad. And we ended up like we ended up cleaning that up and. There was some stealing. There was some like menu adjustments. Like I don't think the price has been adjusted in five years or something. And we had these like giant breakfast tacos, which we were known for, which was they were awesome, but they yeah. were like 
I, I want to say they were like a dollar seventy five or something, and it was like four eggs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like two two twenty five yeah. worth of product, right? Yeah. And so uh, it was just some some basic adjustments, but it was like trying to let the culture remain, and and it was a very employee guided culture, and to let them let that stay intact was super important. Why is it important? And, and how did you know that that was important back in 2001 when you're 20 years old that having an employee guided culture is important? Well, I don't think I could have characterized it that way back then. I think it was one of these things that's like there was no reason to undo things that were working, right? And so... So what was working was the culture, was the, the, the unity between the different elements of the business, back of house, front of house. It was symbiotic. Yeah, I mean, and it was a cool. It was just a cool place. Like if you had, if you tried to start jacking with that, you would have. So like the music was a lot of times like heavy rock, and there was like just in the middle of the night, it was like essentially just put everybody from the bar and drive them over there, and then put them in there for eggs. Yeah, right. It was like a wild what you'd expect from that. Yeah, right? so it had a good vibe, it had a good culture, it had a good brand. It just didn't have good operations. Right. Um, exactly. It was the nuts and bolts. Release. Yeah. yeah, and. Um, you identified uh, cleaning it up, picking it up, just kind of facelifting. Like yep. cosmetics was the first thing you did. Uh, the second thing you did was you you did menu engineering. Yep. Were, was it like, I mean, at this point, twenty years old, did you know what you were doing with menu engineering, or were you just like, we need to make these more expensive? Were you doing recipe costing cards and all that, or were you just saying this is needs to be more? Somewhat, but I mean, yeah, somewhat. We ha- and we had a family friend in Dallas that gave us some advice that was in the restaurant business at that point. What was that advice? His advice was money in restaurants is made with the dimes and nickels. Mm. And to some degree, I agree with that still. That's a good protection mechanism for yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would agree that's the way it's made, but I mean, you have to, you have to guard against those things or, or you'll, you'll, it's more like that's how you lose your money, not mm. how you make it. And, yeah. and so I think a lot of people, my view now is that a lot of people mix up not losing money with making money. And they're not the same thing, right? Um, so a lot of people are trying to make more money by not spending anything when in reality you make more money by investing in a smart way in your business. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and it is a nickels and, and pennies. I mean, we're trying to change that. You know, We're trying to increase those margins, but you got to focus. You're right. It's two separate verticals. It's money in and money out. And people in the past, I think, have been guilty of not paying attention to the money out. And yeah, you can absolutely get in trouble if you're not paying attention to it. But at the same time, money in is a different vertical. It's a different strategy. It's a different game. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, I think a lot of times in restaurants, you'll see people not spend money on things that will help them dramatically because the idea of spending money is equated to losing money. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense. You've got to invest in smart things like You've got to have, like, for instance, driving, like, you can increase your your night sales by, like, 10 to 15% by just having great exterior lighting on your building. Yeah. Right? That's like, I don't know, what does that cost? Maybe $1,000, right? I mean, it's like- You look at your electric bill trivi- over time and the lights and the actual initial investment, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's like a trivial investment relative to the revenue change. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, that's a, that's like a physical example. Other examples, like, obviously, we believe in software, and software and stuff is the same way. I think a lot of people- um, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with how they spend their money based on what you know how how they're trying to drive their their profits. But I, you know, I don't know. I, I I do think it's good advice on the on the. Well, I guess the other side of that too is, a lot of people think that making money is spending less money. When I think making money is executing a good plan. So if you've got, for instance, 
a manager who's only focused on lowering labor, they're probably costing you more money than they're saving you in the labor they're dropping yeah. in the form of lost sales, right? It's not about dropping labor. It's about putting a labor plan together that that hits the, the sales that you're targeting. Like, decide what your labor cost needs to be for your building based on, like, r- run a great shift, right, that you go crush it on. Measure what your labor was, and that's your optimal labor percentage. Now, plan to spend that on every shift so you can max, you know, hit those sales numbers and then start tinkering with how do you drive your sales up and then what labor do you need to get there. And so it's not about like, but the manager who shows up and doesn't do a good labor plan and then he and then his labor is running high so he's like, just cut, cut, cut. And then he starts losing sales or service suffers or plating suffers or whatever and then you end up with losing more sales yeah. and now he's fighting from behind and he's got, it's like this, there's a there's a lot there's a lot of like just a little bit of putting a plan together and then executing against that plan is a lot more effective than operating out of the fear of saving money. Yes, what I was thinking during that entire time that was coming to my mind is the idea of being reactionary versus being intentional. And what you describe when you're just lowering your labor expenses, you're being reactionary. You're like, oh crap, our margins aren't good. We need to spend less. And then if you're not spending the money on the resources you need, the people, right, the good people you need to do the job, then you're not going to do a good job and then your, your margins are going to get even worse because nobody's going to come back. Yep. Is that, did I? To- totally, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, so when it comes to putting a plan together, I think you mentioned it, but like what's the, the, the keystone, like the, the, the thing we need when it comes to putting a labor plan together? I think you said it was starting. Well, so I started, we start with sales and labor projections. Okay. Right, and so we, we we need to have a good sales target, and then we have we target labor by day, and then that weights out to like a labor by percentage for the week, and then we take that, and then that influences when we write our schedule. It tells us is our schedule on that labor plan or off that labor plan, and so by the time the schedule is published, we know that it matches the plan that we hit based on our and all all that takes like ten minutes. Right, what, what, not, what dictates what dictates the the labor expense or the labor plan? Is it just a budget? Yeah, so I mean, I think people can start with a budget. I think the best way to do it is to go get involved and run a service where you just crush it, yeah. right? Everything's on point. Everything's perfect. And then what was your labor? Well, yeah, what, 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 There's your what, labor budget, yeah, yeah, right? What, like, what did that take? Right. Um, I agree. And I think that, you know, it's, it's also then looking at how can we do this better, right? And like once you find that sweet spot, it's like little tweaks, but not dramatic tweets like you're saying. Like, what can we do to streamline be 1% better like every day, right? Yeah, it's like dialing the knobs on the mixer. You just dial it yeah. in. And you so like you, but you, what's, the tr- what's the trick, in your opinion, to be able to do what you just described? What's the one thing you need? Well, I think you need financial awareness. Yep. And I think you need to, I think you need to, you got to stop and get a handle on what your sales are trending so you can make a good plan for your sales. Because everything starts with your, your plan for your sales. And then you and then that flows through, you calculate your percentages against that. That tells you how much you can spend each day on labor. And then when you go run your labor plan during the day, if you you know, you if you're looking at a tool that'll show you against your plan, you can Yeah. You can operate against it. The, and then the, adjust the next week. And I agree. I think what I was thinking, the answer I had in my mind, and I think this is aligns perfectly with what you said, was you gotta track. If you're not tracking it, you can't. You don't know how you're doing versus one day to the next day. And you said financial awareness. Yeah, you and that's can't just tracking. You can't manage what you can't measure, right? Yeah. So I don't. What's this guy's name? There's a guy. Was it? I forget. I forget what his name is. He was a famous economist. He went over to Japan after we blew them up. I know you're after talking World War about. II, and he helped them put the country back together. His name's. Uh, I know. I know the quote, and I know who you're talking about, but it's escaping me. It'll probably come back to me in like two minutes. Anyway, that was his whole thing. If you can't, ma- if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah. 
Uh, but, the, but the challenge in restaurants is manage, measuring it in a time efficient manner, right? Because everybody's like, you're like, well, do I do I run service right now or do I go to the office and run spreadsheets? That's yeah. it's not like Guy Kawasaki, is it? No, uh, I'll find it in a second. No, it's bothering me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, like, let's zoom to like thirty thousand feet real quick. And I usually, when I'm doing these interviews, I also like to kind of uh, dive deeper into like your come up but as far as i could tell you you didn't have any experience in the restaurant industry but it does sound like you had entrepreneurs in your business because your parents had money that they were able to lend you so there was some some success in your well it was actually helped just helped guarantee a loan okay yeah so they they're using their credit essentially peter drucker was that's the name yeah so um let's I feel like I need to like really jump up to thirty thousand feet and kind of paint the picture because you got a lot of things on your on your your record here as far as like where what you've done. Sure. So in two thousand one, that was your first restaurant. That was Star Seeds Cafe. We kind of unpackaged that a little bit. A year later, you bought your second restaurant, Cain and Abel's. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, two thousand four, uh, you started. You got into a construction yeah. company, but you come from a history of construction, so that seems, that makes like a. Yeah. So that the second, sense. yeah. So the second restaurant was a was a bar. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And then I, I also have. Um, so that was two thousand two, two thousand four. You do the construction. Two thousand six, you do a productions company. Two thousand nine, you do another Abel's on the Lake. Two thousand ten, you got Austin's Pets Alive. Two thousand eleven, Turnaround Advisors. Two thousand eleven again, Tea Time USA Tucson. Two thousand twelve is when you got into El Arroyo, which is what you're known for today. Um, and then from there, Hills Cafe, Chickadee, uh, Abel's North, Gara Construction. Am I saying that correctly? Gara, yeah. Gara Construction. And then uh, To Go Margs was the, the most recent thing that you're probably known for. Yeah. So the reason why I'm rushing through all this is because we have a lot to unpackage and we've got about an hour to sure. an hour and a half left. So moving forward, um, like where do you think the, the areas of growth really were for you? Like, where does it make sense out of this journey that I just dumped on our listeners? Where does it make sense to like to really like fast forward to and slow down and really unpackage? Yeah, so I guess the sec so uh, the second restaurant, the Cane and Abel's, was a. Uh, I bought that the summer between my junior and senior year at UT, and I basically. Wait, so you were still in college when this was all going on? Yeah, I thought you dropped out of college to open a restaurant. No, no, I, no. I was going to drop out of college to go to the military. Okay, and then I the, the deal was that. Oh. The deal was they would help me get the loan if I would not drop out of college. So you're running a business and going to school part-time, full-time? Full-time. Well, I mean, full-time-ish. I think this is something only a 21 or 22-year-old would have the endurance to do, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't even know that part of it. So what was it like? How were you managing these two parts of your life? Uh, Well, I was going to class maybe less than I should have gone. Um, I uh, So I... So I changed my when we bought the first restaurant. I changed my name to my, my major to Spanish. Okay, right because I figured that that would do me better than business. Okay, and so I. Uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, I was, was it because it was an easier. Oh, well, I mean, honestly, like in the restaurant industry, it's probably not the worst thing to, to learn. No, I, I speak it every day. Yeah, yeah, no, I speak it every day. That I makes sense. It, it was probably the most valuable thing I ever did. I couldn't tell if you're being sarcastic or not, but realistically, yeah, no, no, it's really, a great I, skill. yeah, I know, I really do. Yeah, I use yeah, it every day. Seriously, I, I uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. So I was I was undeclared. And I wanted to do business, and I was like, no, no I'm going to do Spanish instead. Okay, so I switched to that. But you know, I mean, I didn't. I managed my class schedule. It took me a little longer to graduate. Um, I had, I had uh, like, wanted to do physics. 
I loved physics in high school, so I wanted to take that in college, and I decided just to place out of that again. Okay. I had like failed my placement test on purpose because I was going to be cool, so I tried to just, <laughs> like, I'm just going to go place out of this. I don't have time for this. I love it. So I had, uh, so I went and did, um, yeah, I don't know. So Cain and Abel's, uh, that was a business broker walked in Starseeds and told me about it, and I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. So I, I, uh, I bought it, and I remember that place was, I mean, it was way out of control. It was losing about 10 grand a month. Cain Abel's. Cain Abel's was, yeah. You kind of developed a little bit of a niche for yourself to like find businesses that have good vibes, good people, but just need some operational support. Yeah, like legacy brands that needed yeah. that needed to be cleaned up and turned yeah. around. Yeah. So I've done that. That's where a lot of those businesses you listed were all turnarounds. Okay. So like the first 10, 11 years, all I did was sort stuff out. So we came in and, and we bought. So the construction thing started. I didn't know what business interruption insurance was, which... I think everybody should have, okay. uh, but I didn't know what it was. And Cain and Abel's, uh, the bathroom ventilation fan, like the fart fan caught on fire and burned the building down. And so uh, the insurance wasn't enough to cover the construction and didn't have business interruption insurance. So we pieced it back together, got it back open like in a crippled state, and then started this construction company so that I could employ a couple people and that suppliers would sell me materials at cost and essentially general contracted a third of it to subcontractors, hired a few guys that I kind of project managed, and then I physically rebuilt a bunch of it myself. So this is where your history, your family history of having construction probably really came in, right? Yeah, it yeah. was, yeah. I'll Growing up, I was like, this isn't a ton of fun, but yeah, when you need it, you got it. But it's a great, as a restaurateur, being able to fix your own shit is a great skill. And especially yeah. if you're going in and you're looking for like, if you're, you're basically a full-time exit strategy, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're going around, you're finding legacy brands that are done and you're going in and you're on a, on your you know own dollar go, and flipping it, essentially. You're a restaurant flipper. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we need to know? You, you, you started talking about the business interrupt, interruption service or... or yeah, business interruption insurance. Yeah, insurance. That's what I meant to say. Um, did I cut you short on that? Did you want to unpackage that a little bit more, the importance of that? Yeah, I mean, I, well, it's just, if, if people don't know what it is, they should talk to their insurance agent about it. It's, it's essentially if you have a catastrophic event and your business has to close because of it, they'll, the business interruption insurance will pay the difference of what you would have made yeah. versus what you did make. So you can keep your employees. <laughs> yeah, and, and pay your rent and keep your yeah, business. Exactly. I mean, all the, I mean, there's, it'll pay everything. Yeah. So episode 641 is uh, a recording I did with an insurance broker. We cover all the insurances that most restaurants don't think they need that they really do. So check out was that, that one of them. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely one of them. 641 is the episode. We'll link to it in the show notes. Keep going. Yeah. As somebody who had their restaurant burned down and didn't have it you yeah. de- and I've paid for it ever since. And I, and I did have another fire at one point and I helped turn around as an advisor, another group that had a fire and used it Nice. and it, it happens and it's you do important. need it. Yeah. It's important. Um, yeah. So, so got it turned around. It was, it was way, way out of control. I mean, I remember the bar manager was like, at one point, passed out on the floor behind the bar, face down. Which, I mean, it's pretty disgusting to pass yeah. out on a bar face down. But anyway, I uh, I, I essentially got a mentor then. He was a bar owner in Austin, and he's he's got tremendous amount of success. And I called him and said, "Hey, uh, I need some help. Like this this is this is out of control, and these guys are." Yeah, I'm having trouble getting it under control. So what was different about this flip versus the other flip? In the first flip, you said that you just were able to kind of clean things up a little bit and put some systems in place and start tracking the financials. It was like the big thing. Yeah, the second the second one didn't have the kind of the, – the employees weren't as there – were, there weren't – there were some employees who were really cared and were – there was – you know, we ended up – we I, the way I got it under control is, is I – 
I got like a I ended up firing half the staff one night for stealing. Yeah. Right? I put a hat on real low in the crowd. I was only 21. They couldn't tell me from anyone else. And I just yeah. watched people put money in their pocket. And I called Bartenders. them up to the servers yeah and just yeah and i just called them up to the office and i'm like so worried about being super respectful to them even though they're stealing their ass off and yeah anyway i called this like six foot six guy that i knew named tiny and tiny came and sat in the dining room and i said hey tiny i woke him up and he's like ellis what's up and i was like i need you to just come come up here he's like i need you to be a witness he's like it's a tuesday and i was like i know but i don't want anybody like thrashing the place while yeah. i do this can yeah. you come up here yeah so he, he comes up there he sits there and, and people were like hey um we're closed and he's like oh, i'm with ellis and they're like what the i was like it, it's fine he's not going to break anybody but yeah. he is going to make sure you don't you know, like, anyway so he sits down call him up one at a time and i there was only a 12 employees at the time so i said i called up five there's 10 of them working that night it's the busiest night of the week i called up five of them one at a time and said hey look i caught you stealing you're fired please leave yeah. um next one next one next one called the other five up and said hey I just, look these people got fired for stealing i caught all five of them doing it red-handed anybody's got a problem with that, you can go to. Two more people get up and leave. So at that point, we're down to five employees from 12, but we made money from that point forward. Yeah. So the advice my buddy gave me was like, just el- eliminate anybody who's Remove just not going to... cancer. If they're not going to do the right thing, then yeah. get them out of there. And the, you have to have some non-negotiables. You have mm-hmm. to make those non-negotiables up. Like from day one, you got to put them up front. Uh, like this is who we are when you hire. These are zero tolerance. If we catch you steal- stealing, like you're gone. If we catch you sexually harassing somebody, you're gone. Anything yep. like that. No doubt. You, you got to make those things known and you, you really can't budge because nope. people like, I, th- I think that's one of those things that you're not going to change about somebody. Well, yeah, you're not going to change them and you're only going to hurt your own culture by telling and not just by, by one, the bad apple spoiling the bunch, but, but you're essentially subjecting. If, if those people are willing to do that, who knows what else they're doing that you're not seeing. And you're, if you're willing to subject the people who are showing up and doing a great job and being a good teammate, to having to work with somebody like that, you're not doing anybody. You're doing a real disservice to the rest of your staff. Absolutely. And that's I think people can lose sight of, or I think it's important to maintain sight on that your obligation as a leader is to create an environment where your team can be successful. Yeah. So just like the first restaurant, you did the facelift, you did some systems for tracking and managing better. Uh, you got rid of the cancer. You removed the people that weren't the right fit for the culture that you wanted. What else did you do? Yeah, and start cleaning up the facilities. I mean, it's it's interesting because with almost every turnaround, I probably turned around a dozen or so businesses and between the construction, restaurant, printing and promotional apparel, you know, all of it, it's always the same. There's a few fundamental things that you're just like, that doesn't really make sense. Maybe they're still doing them because they just don't understand. Maybe they're still doing them because it's hard to let go of. But it's it's not even about what you start doing. Most of the time, it's about what you stop doing, right? And so with most turnarounds I've ever done, we've seen a revenue reduction, in the short run, but we become profitable immediately, and then we rebuild off of that. Okay, so not what what you start doing, what you stop doing. What rephrase that last thing of the things that you stop doing? That's important. Yeah, so it could be it could be anything from you know really expensive marketing programs that are driving unprofitable business. It could be that the managers are buried in, in administrative work that's generating no value and they're not and they feel overwhelmed and disjointed from it could be that you know you're you're uh you know requiring employees to do something that takes their focus away from the from service i mean there's umpteen number of things right the, and so the trend is stop doing inefficient things yeah <laughs> stop doing the things that aren't working immediately yeah, exactly and start putting your energy into things that aren't working i love that um when you're looking for these you said there's 12 locations um 
when you're looking for these locations, do they come to you? Do you look for them? What exactly are you looking for? Of the turnarounds I've done? Yeah. Like when do you know that there is a good opportunity and, and what well, you have to look for? It just, a lot of them have come to me. So like the, 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 after you start doing the, after I've done a couple of, so like we, for instance, with the printing and promotional company, I went to pick my t-shirts up one day and the guy's like, man, buy this from us. It's doing great. And I was like, maybe he's like, just give me like 300 grand. And I was like, well, maybe give me a little more information than that. You know, and it turned out it was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, <laughs> you know, and the guy was like super smooth, super super easy to like want to get along with, want to be friendly with. Um, you know, I never I never had been to, uh, you know, I'd never been to a bankruptcy court before. And, you know, you always... It's probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's when you're helping people come out of it, they're yeah. kind of fun. But yeah. if you're, I guess if you're in if them, you're they're the probably scene, not fun. Not, yeah, exactly. But uh, the judge was pissed. I mean, he was like leaning over the bench, like yelling at this guy because he just kept one excuse after the next. So anyway, we showed up and said, hey, listen, just give us like a month to sort. Th- I, I did. We didn't say, hey, your honor, just listen clearly. But we, we essentially, that was the messaging. Give us a month to fix this. Got all the vendors sorted out on payout plans. Everybody got paid in full except one outfit who tried to do something really sneaky and the judge didn't like it and he just hammered him to the wall. Yeah. I feel um, like I need to point out the beeping that's going on in yeah. the background. <laughs> so we are literally the, the day of setup for the TRA marketplace and there are forklifts and vendors surrounding us. If you're watching the video, you can see all the stuff that's happening around us right now and that's what you're listening to. So we are on site and there's a lot of action around us. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, no problem. We... um uh. Yeah, we. Uh, so you're you're sorting. The first thing you did is you, you work on the relationships with the vendors and you put plans in place with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got all the stakeholders happy, and and then you know brought it out of bankruptcy and started. So that one that one just found us. I went to pick up my t-shirts, and he was just maybe trying to sell it to any customer that wanted to buy it. And um, it was a neat business to get involved. Of course, we thought it's going to be fantastic. Everybody buys this stuff, and then we got into it. We're like, yeah, everybody sells it too. <laughs> and and it, we've turned it into a good business by focusing on the things we can really add value to um, and helping people like elevate their brands with branded products. But, um, but yeah, it was super interesting. And then, and then we got into, you know, some of the other restaurant deals. Oh, Abel's on the Lake was the third restaurant. Um, we actually found that it's, it's a lakeside restaurant that's 16,000 feet. Um, my wife wanted to rent it to get married there. And um, the people that owned it wouldn't rent it to us. And so it was actually a, a state bank owned the company that okay. had the lease. And so I was like, well, we're in the restaurant business. Let's go. I want to meet the bank directly and let's talk to him about it. And then I was kind of thinking like, maybe I can just talk him into the wedding. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. Let's see. So we could sit with him in like five minutes. I was like, oh, shit, this is a great deal. <laughs> uh, so, I, so that afternoon we sent him an offer and we said, we're not going to, they wanted somebody to assign, to assign the lease to. They wanted us to pay the bank loan that they'd been defaulted and that they were carrying on their books. And we said, listen, we're not going to pay that bank loan, but we will put a successful concept in here and you can be our partner and keep 7% of it. Okay. And the bank were, the bank was like, we'll do that deal, but we want 15%. It was like, done. Okay. And so we ended up at, oh, reopening it. We, got the, we, we bought it on April 27th of 09. We opened the doors on May 20th of 09. So... In that, it was the craziest opening you ever seen. Rebuilt some stuff, and we built a bar over three all night. So we have a like eighty five foot around bar. We built over three all nighters with three different friends. Again, I think this is like the the and the, one of the things I'm really passionate. I'm passionate about, but interested 
in when it comes to all this, like the, the world of restaurants is vertical integration, right? And I don't know how you've set up your businesses. If they're just all separate entities that have their own EIN numbers that you're just contracting out. But like the, the benefits of vertical integrations, when you do get an opportunity, you can prioritize, you know who you're going to go to for the construction. You have a business for that, right? And you can move in instantly and make things happen. Um, kind of continue on that thought. Like how has that served you? Well, so we've started to segment it a little bit, but we, like with pertains to software. It's like we have our soft, our software company is called Axial Commerce, yeah, and that's software that we built specifically to solve the problems. Well, I spent two years trying to talk other software companies into building this, and I just couldn't get them over the hump to start it. And so I just moved some software programmers from another team, and we did it ourselves. Okay, and so that's but with construction, I've kind of sent that back out again. What do you mean um, by that? You sent it back out. Well, so we, we, we sold or, or got out of the construction companies we had, um, and then we, we essentially used third parties. To, we, ha- we have a couple construction guys on staff, but to do some stuff, and then I use a professional project manager okay. to do other stuff. I so think, it's a mix. I think now's a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back, because I kind of want to get into like, your, your like, consciousness of, like, the, like, of how you decide to set these businesses up. And I don't know. I think I just, there's there's stuff there. I want to pull back some layers. So we'll be right back. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now I've told you what's new with Play IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with Play IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With bill pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. Play IQ bill pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check ACH or Play IQ card. Also with Play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right. No more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare spend by item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then finally, there's Play IQ approval hierarchies. Only see the invoices you need to. No more duplications of efforts and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, get the Play IQ card for three months free. All right, we're back. And just real quick, just paint the picture of all the elements of the things that you've either had or currently have. And I really want to kind of dissect this idea of when you know to start your own business versus when you think you should outsource the benefits of starting your own business and all that uh, to supplement our restaurant businesses. So 
just paint that big picture. So we, we've identified construction. We've identified the restaurant industry, obviously. We've identified Axial, which is your merchandise. And, and Axial is the software company. So, okay. Yeah. Is the software company. What's the name of the, the merchandise company? Aztec Promotional Group. Aztec yeah. Promotional Group. What else is there that I have not mentioned? Well, so there's, we talked about the construction, the restaurants, and, you know, I do commercial real estate and some residential real estate development. Okay. Um, but all these are like, I feel like a lot of these are very complimentary. You know, it's, it's all the elements that you need like to be a restaurant tour, but you're just going deeper into it, right? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more, <clears throat> there's a lot more tied together than it seems like on the surface, right? So I've, I've to give you kind of the breadth of it, I've, I've started up, turned around, sold businesses in the restaurant, construction, software, kind of promotional products and, and apparel um, and real estate industries. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I've obviously got a personality. I like to get into things and, yes. do, and, and do things. I think um, wired up as a contributor, right? So I'm always trying to figure out what can I contribute to this? How can I improve it? How can I add value? I think that it's really important when you're thinking about just if I had to, as I'm reflecting on it, what I think really stands out is where where do you add the most value and and not undervaluing your own time, right? So it's easy to say, I can do that. I'm going to do it, right? It's another thing to say, is that the most valuable use of my time? And sometimes you don't know until you do it. So my, my goal was to learn everything I could about everything I could, whether it was, you know, operations, accounting, legal, finance, uh, any aspect of business on any industry I get my hands onto because I wanted that breadth of experience. I think there's a shorter path from A to B. I, I took that path because I like that path. It was, for, you, you know, you enjoy the, the act of, of learning new things and getting in there, getting your hands dirty, just figuring it out. Yeah. I just love building things, yeah. building anything, businesses or physical things or whatever. I just like building. Um, but I think there's a, I think there's a, a, I think what's important is people think about where can I add the most value and what's a good use of my time. Right. So you're taking skills that you already had. Um, and you're almost like, it's, I mean, what's, what's driving these decisions as far like for the construction, for example, uh, that was a certain level of skill set and network that you had. You can lean on your strengths. Why would I pay somebody else to do this where I can put together a team to do it myself? What are the benefits of doing it yourself? Yeah. So the first, well, that was driven by a budget issue. There, okay. there simply wasn't enough budget to rebuild it. It was either, it was either do it or don't. it was, it was like a survival. Yeah. You know, like, you're doing it for yourself originally when yeah. you were investing these the two companies at the two restaurants that we talked about before, yeah. um, Canyon Ables and uh, uh, Starseeds, um, you were doing it yourself. But at one point, or did you just say to yourself, I'm good at doing this. I can do it for other people too? Yeah. So the construction, we started the first construction company for t- to turn around Canyon Ables. Okay. And then it was with, uh, we get it rebuilt. And then it was one of our subcontractors was struggling. And so we bought half of the company, it was a concrete company, okay. to turn it around. And then, and then got out of that business. And so that was more of just a, hey, this is a business problem. This isn't a concrete problem. It's not like, it was just a, it was a structural business issue. And it didn't really, and a lot of these issues are the same from industry to industry. And there is a lot of cross-pollination where you think, gosh, look at, look at how we're doing this over here. It's the same as, isn't, you know, industry A is the same as industry B. Industry B, it's just not best practice. So you can cross-pollinate those ideas and get a much, a much better value in both, right? Just from, yeah. from learning things. So, um, but that that was the construction thing. It was really just had an opportunity to do some turnarounds. Okay, were there other restaurants that you would use that business to go, like 
help? Like, would people, would other restaurants or other people like contract you out? Was that part? Yeah, of Yeah, yeah, sure. Turning around restaurants always has a heavy construction component. Yeah. So as we weren't. It was doing it for our own account, really. So as we did, as we dealt other restaurant turnarounds, there was always construction components, and we were heavily involved in self performing a lot of the work and managing a lot of the work herself. And so that was that was really what that was. So one of the about. things I've noticed about you, and I think is unique to your story so far, is that you came into this industry you were working in the industry for about a year and then you immediately went to work for yourself working on your businesses and that's unusual most people are working in their business for five ten years maybe even longer before they figure out that they need to remove themselves from it and work and make their job working on their business and maybe i just miss it but it sounds like from day one even when we were talking about the canes and abel or cane and abel's um you weren't working enough on your business that people didn't know who you were when you were sitting in your own restaurant. You well, it was saying? all well that at night the tw- at the age of twenty one. They would have known who I was. It was just real busy in there, but I did because I was there all the time. But I I was always working on it. So I I took the the approach like oh look I'll work in it. I mean I've yeah. slung a lot of drinks and a lot so of you just plates. Put a cap and, on maybe some some glasses. And yeah, I just stood in a, in a heavy crowd and just watched it happen. But I mean I was it, it is it is very important to recognize. I I I think people can recognize i think it's important to think about it in the sense of like what's happening when you're when you're not there is the status quo what you you being there and you applying pressure to it or like pushing on the throttle is you you can create an outcome but that isn't the status quo and you're not going to change the status quo doing that a lot i mean i mean if you if you are truly going to be the owner operator owner chef then that's that's one thing. You're, you're, that's There's how you wrong want to do it. With that. If, that's, if, that's what you, if that's what your passion is, if your passion is the thing, doing the work, and you want to do that, then th- that's absolutely great. Yeah, that's great. You're in yeah. the right role. But if you're yeah. trying to get out of that role, if you're trying to own, be, run it as a business that's independent of you, and it has its own, it's hard to sell. You can't sell a business that has... That hinges on your skill set. Right. It's not an independent... It doesn't live on its own. Yeah. It's, it's dependent on you. Exactly. And in a business that's dependent on anybody isn't really a business it's a job for the person it's dependent on yeah and so you know it's important to to accept that the stat if if you don't want it to be dependent on if you want it to be a business that lives and breathes on its own you kind of have to accept the status quo for what it is and then go to work changing the status quo yeah but you know this at 21 years old because i mean it was only four years later two years later that you started your construction company and I don't know how you're running a construction company and a restaurant at the same time. So you must've known the significance of systems and culture and having these things in place or either that, or you had a really great operating partners that were in there. Well, we, I had a lot of, they weren't partners. We had a lot of good employees who were yeah. really, who were really contributors and good yeah. people. I mean, and, and we kind of looked for people who intrinsically had those personality traits, not people who, had had that on their resume before because it really doesn't matter. You said those personality traits, but you didn't say what those personality traits were. Well, you're look. I mean, to me, I'm looking for somebody who's a contributor first. Like they're there to make an impact, mm-hmm. right? And they're and they're going to treat other people the way they want to be treated, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of like two versions of the golden rule. Like there's like the golden rule of treat others how you want to be treated and there's the golden rule of he who has the gold makes the rules right yeah <laughs> and you want the person with the former right right uh so i don't know i mean it, it's it's uh 
I, I think it's about finding people who are there for the right reasons, right? They're there because they want to make an impact. They want to leave more than they, it's like, a, it's like camping, right? You leave it better than you found it. And if they think about life that way, then they're going to be a good leader in the business for the most part. So the next business I saw for you was the, the company Six Productions. What, what's, what's Six Productions? So we started it, we, we decided to do a charity kickball tournament. Got it. And so we did, it was called Kicking Hunger. It was for raise money and food for the Capital Area Food Bank. And so we just put like 32 kickball teams together and had eight fields. And it was a fun, fun kind of cool experience. And we did some other New Year's Eve events and stuff. But we just named it Company Six because we didn't, I had to form it. We didn't have a better name for it. I was it. curious if it was because of, it was 2006. It was, that. well, it was that. It was also the sixth <laughs> company. So, okay. that yeah. makes sense. Um, and then, I mean, the other, we haven't even gotten to, um, I mean, when I was introduced to you, I was introduced to you as, to you as the, you were the president of El Arroyo. Yeah. We haven't started talking about El Arroyo yet, but is there anything that's worth talking about as far as the things you've done, the lessons you've earned, learned the hard way, things you can share up to before, or I should say before 2012 when you took over El Arroyo? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I think, I think, I think the heart, the hardest lessons were about getting, so, so if I had to do it all over again, I would dive way deeper into accounting and, and, and op, operate accounting at a level that was way beyond where we were at the time, right? So, so there's different levels of what you need, right, based on how big your company is and everything. There's, there's some best practices that it's expensive to use. You know, so the best, the best advisors are expensive, but they pay for themselves, Yeah. right? So a good accountant and a good attorney yep. will... Well, and it doesn't. In, in good, expensive doesn't mean good, right? Expensive means they have the personality traits that you're looking for, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're competent and yeah. they're thoughtful and, and and generally empathetic type of humans, right? That are that are going to help guide you to learning the best way to do things. And so, um, especially when you're young and getting started. Um, and so, I think that I think that using good advisors and and committing the resources to it uh, is is one of the best lessons. And, you know, it's a lesson that even, even one of my friends who started a company became a very big company, started, started and sold a few very big companies, was telling me about his first CFO that he hired and how he was making more money than him and how hard of a decision that was and how one of his own mentors pushed him to do that. But sometimes you got to step back to move forward, right? right? And the thing in the financial one, it's all about fiscal responsibility. When you have somebody to focus on fiscal responsibility and that's their sole job, guess what? You're gonna start making more money, right? Like that, that's how it's if they're work. doing a good job yeah, for you, yeah. Right? And like, and that's the idea is like you got to give before you get. You got to step back before you can step forward. Well, that's a great way to put it. You got to, yeah. you got to, you got to give before you get. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm curious to pull back a few layers on this idea of fis- fiscal responsibility, and that's what you would have put more energy into as accounting. What were the changes? Get specific. Like where were you, and then what was the thing that you started to do that was a big difference aside from outsourcing? Well, so we were doing like annual financials and stuff like that. I mean, it, financials should be prepared every single month by the tenth of the month, and they should be right. Yeah, I, I mean, li- yeah, I literally just uh, recorded a. Uh, costing and profit 101 course with Rudy Mick, who's uh, somebody I really look up to. He's been a repeat guest in the show. And this is the, the stuff we get into, but the, he does weekly costing and daily right. like inventory. And like the system is like bulletproof, but it's huge. It's so important. Why is that so important? That, that level of um, at least monthly. Well, it's back to you can't manage what you can't measure. And if yeah. you're not paying attention to it, you're going to have a set of assumptions that 
are not right. They might be a little bit wrong. They might be a lot wrong. You just don't know. And when people don't know, they start to make decisions out of fear, principally, or out of assumption, or yeah. out of whatever assumptions they have. And those choices are never going to be as good as well-informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And business is about making a plan, executing that plan, and then iterating that plan, yeah. and then doing it again, right? And so... But you like how do like it's it's the game of business is what you're describing right now right but you how do you play the game if you aren't keeping score right and when you start t- tracking all the numbers you start to be able to keep score and then when you can keep score it becomes a lot more fun and it becomes a challenge you can do better than yourself than the the, the month before the week before and it's an, um, and it's an organization with with it, once it's a business and not a job you have other contributors that need to be recognized and need to be incentivized. And you can't, if you don't even know what they're delivering, how can you do that? Yeah, I love that. Uh, so where were you in 2012? I mean, we, we talked to, I don't know if it makes sense to talk about Austin and Pets Alive. Uh, you're the turnaround advisors, but I think that was, was that just consulting with like what you're, like how to turn around a business? Is that what that was? Well, Austin Pets Alive is a like a fantastic charity that essentially Austin, Texas was essentially the first no-kill community about you know putting best practices for stray animal management into into place and helping you know Euthanation, one basically like preventing putting animals down is that what you're talking yeah about? so is exactly so essentially creating programs to help prevent animals from coming into the into the shelters and then developing a, a community that cared about adoption over over buying animals if i mean unless you really need an animal that's that's a bred animal for purpose right yeah. a lot of people are Animals that are that are adopted are fantastic yeah. animals a lot of the time. Yeah, and so it was really about developing that programming. And when I got involved, and we actually went to adopt a, a dog from there, and back to my early like I can contribute to that. <laughs> and so I was like contacted him, and it ended up the next thing I knew, I was running. I was the board member in charge of finance, and <laughs> and um, in the accounting uh, needed some work and some other things. So I dove in and. It was a great experience. I mean, it was one of those experiences where I got to work with some just unbelievable people, mm-hmm. and it was a great life experience just getting to be around them. So talking about El Arroyo, yeah. uh, what was it about this opportunity that really sunk to you? Why did you take this opportunity? Um, it just had a neat feel to it. You know, it had been around in various forms since 1975. It kind of took its current form in 1987. I knew of it. Um, actually, the guy at my first job, uh, my first bar job, which is another lesson not to do to somebody, uh, the guy with the bunny costume would, would um, take happy hour there early sometime. And at one point, he told me that if I helped him hire some more cocktail uh, staff, then, then, then he would, uh, you know, one, I worked my butt off. He, I mean, he called me Wonder Mutt because I bar backed for three bartenders downstairs and two bartenders upstairs which was like a 20 foot rise you know in <laughs> a steep old building staircase and you know i ran i ran my tail off dripping in sweat every so i mean I, I i did everything to earn being a bartender um and i was young and i hadn't been doing it that long but i mean i like, like i said he called me wonder Mud, i worked yeah. so hard and then and then i got these other people to come work there and he promoted them to be bartenders because he liked them better you know i mean they were um I'm better looking than me, I guess. I wouldn't go that far. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, they were fantastic people, and they were hard workers, too. They are really nice people, friends of mine. But, uh, so how does this tie to El Arroyo? Anyway, I went to El Arroyo because he was there one day, and I said, he, on the patio, having margaritas at like two on a Wednesday, and I went and I said, listen, I'm not going to keep busting my ass for you if you don't keep your promises to me. And so 
I said, I'm either you keep your promise or I'm done. Okay. I'm going to go find another job. And so that's the first time I went to El Arroyo, but okay. it was busy on a Wednesday at two o'clock. I thought, <laughs> shit, this is cool. Um, and so anyway, I knew about it. I knew about it a little bit. So did you uh, actually work there? No, no, okay. no, no. I just went to find him. Uh, he was drinking there. Got you, got you, got you. And, uh, and anyway, he made good on it once I, once I threatened him. People shouldn't have to put you in that position, but you know. So it sounds like El Arroyo was doing great back in whatever it was, 1991, 1992. When was it, 2001? Yeah, 2001. Yeah, so it hit, it hit kind of its heyday in 05. Okay. And then it started to taper off. There was El Arroyos everywhere at one point. I mean, there was one in San Marcos and Round Rock and, and all over Texas, Dallas, Fleurville, Georgetown, Bee Caves. Um, there was one in New Orleans for like a month. I still don't know the whole story about that. Uh, never heard the whole story. Wasn't there very long. Um, but when we bought it, it was down to two. Okay. And they were very different concepts. And we, were, we were a licensee in Arlington um, as well, but two corporate stores. And it was um, it was two stores that were very, very different. And both had, you know, were years and years past remodel. And the guy had owned them, um, big, big personality. He just maybe had lost a little interest, hadn't paid as much attention to him as he used to in a, in a long time. And, and he was ready to sell them. And so, anyway, we, um, I talked to him on the phone one day, uh, and uh, it was just about El Arroyo. I don't remember if he called me or I called him. I, d- I don't remember. But essentially, we talked about whether uh, El Arroyo was something that we would buy and he would sell. And anyway, my wife was pregnant with twins at the time. She was on bed rest, and uh, I remember that. And um, we ended up negotiating the final deal points from the hospital cafeteria. So she was on bed rest in the hospital. <laughs> and so on, on uh, negotiating the final deal, deal points over this like horrible pumpkin spice coffee in the cafeteria of the hospital um, to buy it. And then anyway, it was like we ended up taking it on. It was, it was fairly distressed, had some issues. Um, went in there and focused on cleaning up infrastructure first. So we placed all the kitchen equipment. A lot uh, of the same stuff from the first lessons we learned from you from the first restaurants you purchased right yeah just going in there facelifting uh solving the problems fixing the things that need to be fixed what about people well, so we actually try to do it from the inside out and so normally a lot of people want to come in and they want to do facial you know they want to do like improvements facelifts and stuff like that we tend to start with like getting the pos in in order getting the equipment in order getting the fundamental Operations. infrastructure in place so the employees can do their jobs and then we'll go clean up the the, the the way it appears got it yeah um was there anything different about this this flip that hasn't come up yet any new lessons that we can learn yeah um that was crazy i mean i'd I never had like a kitchen walkout before and like the first night we owned it the whole kitchen at one of the stores was like all walked out the door was was there like words exchanged they Did just you piss they, them off or no what? that's just how they were used to getting raises they said oh and so they were like, they're like, that's how we get a raise here. We all, I was like, y'all just quit at the same time. And I was like, I, don't even, I, don't even, I haven't even met some of you guys yet. You know, we just bought the place. Um, so anyway, they were like, yeah. And I was like, all right, well, I don't work like that. So bye. And then I just brought guys over. They'd been working at other stores with us. Yeah. And we figured yeah, it out. At this point, you have four or five other locations total, right? Yeah, this we had three other locations. This was stores four and five. Yeah. So you're, you know, people deep. You had, you had, you know, you could call in favors if you need to. And that was what. Yeah, and we never had that happen. Like our kitchen staff has worked with us forever. I mean, a lot of these guys have worked with us for like, you know, fifteen years, and they just, it's just not something that had ever happened to us because we don't give people a reason to do stuff like that. Yeah, to us. I think that's another great example of just like 
the the power of just having a deep network and loyalty and multiple businesses is that you can call an audible. You can pull from one business to another business to hobble along if you need to. Did these folks come back after they realized that they weren't going to get their jobs back? Or they're like, okay, we'll work. Um, or did some you of them, them some of them tried to, and I just said no thanks. Oh uh, yeah, well, I mean that's you know it's kind of an easy way to instead of having to fire them, they kind of made it easy for you, right? Yeah, and it's a hard situation because to some degree they might have been conditioned to do that, but it's yeah. also like what else have you been conditioned to do? That it, it's still not right of them to do to us because we haven't done anything to them, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it's still not right. And what else have they been conditioned to do? And it was it's like not how let's you just start a new relationship. No, business. no. So we just yes. said let's just move on. I get that. Uh, what else? Um, you know, I think. We learned, you know, so it's interesting. The El Arroyo sign um, is something that a lot of people know it for. So it's, it's like this marquee sign that's in front of the restaurant. We put a different funny message on it every day. And we've developed like a very strong brand voice for it. And it's got a big following. It's got about 725,000 social media followers between Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and we've got branded products we sell all over the country. It's just got a big presence. And a lot of it's driven by that. Um, with... With the sign at the time, it was, well, it was interesting. The staff had to do it every night before they could leave. And so, like, that was kind of interesting because a lot of people aren't into that kind of stuff. Okay, and this is interesting. This is one of my follow-up questions if you're getting in there. At first, it seems like a great idea to have a sign, right? Like, oh, this yeah. is going to be awesome. But then you have to realize that's just one more thing you got to do every day, right? That isn't just as easy as flipping a switch or locking the door. Or like, it's not a checklist item because it's witty. It's smart. It's smart. It's like, so my question was, how do you keep up with it? Like, how do you create systems around that? And it sounds like you make it the last item on the checklist. Well, so that's how it was. We, it, now it's, now the staff is always welcome to contribute to it in the store, but yeah. they don't, that's not their responsibility. It's, we have a team of people that work for the products company and one person is, is uh you know kind of runs the brand partnerships and the content and we have a team of us on a text message chain and so something weird will happen and then somebody will text a news article out to the sign the sign group and then it'll just get knocked around so like when when whataburger got fully bought by the chicago private equity company right somebody posted that article to the to the group and then for like an hour it was just non-stop whataburger chicago jokes um, until like what finally came out was, um, dear Chicago, if you hurt her, we'll kill you. And it was like from the big brother approach, you know, like we love Whataburger. It's a Texas thing. If you hurt it, we'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was super fun and it was witty and it was authentic and genuine and it worked right. And it was like one of our, biz- it was like one of our, um, top performing signs ever. Um, and so you, you have, you have a process there, but really what it came to was, it would get out of line a lot because people, there was no guidelines. And so what one person's like funny is somebody else's like, Hey, that's like really gross or that's really or misogynistic yeah. or like, and so you Anything. had, yeah. yeah. And so we was like, look, we had to start developing these content guidelines that were really, so people think, Oh, it's a sign. You're like, yeah, yeah. It's a physical metal and plastic sign with paint on it. But the reason it works is because it has an authentic brand voice and we develop, you know, it's got to make people smile. It's got to connect with them genuinely. It's got to make, it's got to elicit emotions that they're going to connect with. And sometimes it's very reverent, right? So if somebody, something bad happens, like oftentimes we'll, we'll, we'll point to it, but we even always even try to address it in like a very poignant way. That's, that's, that's going to, it's going to elicit thought and not 
clever. Drive it's, negativity. Yeah, it's clever. It's, it's just, yeah, like you guys, you can tell you put a lot of thought into it. And like, and I was really impressed by it. I was like, how do they, how are these guys like have one zinger after the next zinger after the next zinger? I was like, I couldn't, like, if you wanted to, like, that's a huge undertaking, I feel like, to be able to, once you start that, to be able to, the pressure to keep that up, you know, that's got to be hard. And it sounds like the reason why you're able to do it is because it's not just one person's doing it. You have a whole team. This is the power of like a mastermind, right? Now you get to tap into all these minds, getting creative, people making suggestions. So it's not just one person. Yeah. It's everybody. And, and a lot, and a lot of them we come up with and a lot of them are user submitted now. So we've encouraged our audience over the years to send ideas in. And a lot of them are now like really funny. Um, I, I love it, but that that that's even better because now you're bringing your community in on it, and you're getting a sense of ownership. So if somebody who loves your brand, who also has a big following, sends you a one-liner that that makes it to the board, now they're going to push that, and that it's going to get even more exposure, you know. And it gets that's how you get viral, you know. Yeah, like one of the submissions of this last week was Mikasa es su casa, but Mi Taco es Mi Taco. Yeah, I think the one right. that I saw that I think was one that was one of your favorites is if somebody tells you that they're a vegan and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. a, a, a CrossFitter, what do they talk about first? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. That was um, one of the best. <laughs> that was so good. But at the same time, what you're sharing with us isn't just rules for a, a signboard. It, these are basic social media rules for outsource and doing social media and having what you call the content guidelines. That's mm-hmm. this is, like what you're giving us now for advice is the same advice that you can apply to all social media. And it's, it's a great advice. Like who are we? What is our brand? What, what are we trying to communicate? These are the guidelines. This is the voice. Like don't go outside of these boundaries and have fun and bring people in on it. Yeah, we try to coach people to like if they if they want to talk about it, we try to coach them like the the like the El Arroyo book, for instance. The author of the El Arroyo book is S. Arroyo. Because everybody was like, Who's writing the signs? What's happening? It's like, well, it's easier to just create like a like this identity. And so S. Arroyo could be Senor Arroyo, Senorito Arroyo, Senor Arroyo. Nobody knows who it is, right? Yeah. But it's we so we've created this kind of identity and that identity has a voice. Right, and all brands have a voice, and yeah. some brands are really good at communicating their voice, and others struggle because they're always searching for that zinger, or that or that moment that will make it pop and stand out. But it's like it's just like in restaurants, right? You you'll go to a restaurant with food that's okay as long as it's consistently okay, rather than a place the food is amazing one day and crap the next yeah. day. Right? Consistency is what pe- they're buying expectations yep. that you're meeting. Yep. And so creating a creating a voice for your brand is the most important thing people can do. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like people are like, oh, I'm going to go on a retreat and sit down and write a mission statement. Like maybe you can do it that way. It normally evolves, right? But like what's important to you and what shows through in your brand and what, do you, what makes your brand feel good to the people who are buying your products and services? And it's like a lot less complicated than it gets made out to be. It's just being thoughtful and introspective about what it is that people actually connect with in your business. I love that, man. Um, any other big lessons from El Arroyo that are, were unique to this, this restaurant or takeover? I don't want to say opening cause you took it over. Actually, I did have a question. Um, w- the site existed before you owned it, right? Yeah. Since 1987. Were they, were they, was this a new thing that you started to do or, or was it like, did you take the sign to the next level? Yeah. So we, we developed the content guidelines around it and created voice for it. And okay. so it had, it had, the sign was there and they always did. And they had a few formats of different signs. They do some acronyms with funny words after them. They do some call outs. 
our, for people and stuff, we focused on making it something. It was really about creating that voice. People had to connect with it. It had to be genuine and authentic. And genuinely, like generally speaking, it had to build people up and make them feel good. And so we wanted people to smile when they saw it, but like a real smile, like the smiles that well up inside you, not a cheesy, corny, or it's and never, it, well, I say this, never at someone else's expense unless it's a politician who really asked for it. <laughs> like, for instance, our mayor, our mayor in Austin, we're an equal to- opportunity, right? Yeah. So our mayor in Austin, like, went to Cabo, like, had like a 200-person wedding and then flew to Cabo and did some deal where he told everybody to stay home be, yeah, and be safe this. in small gatherings. Yeah. And then, like, I think when all the freezes were happening in Texas, Cruz went to Mexico, you know, and so we did, like, a, for Cruz, we did, like, a, are you, you know, cold, question mark, just Cruz to Mexico, spelled C-R-U-Z, uh. or Cruz down to Mexico. And then, the, and then for the mayor, Adler, it was like, you know. Uh, but, it's, but it's so smart. Sorry, I'm cutting you short. Yeah, it's okay. Do, do you remember it? Do you want to get it out? Yeah, it was something like private. It was like politicians be like, stay home unless you have a private plane. But the, 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 these uh, politically charged opportunities, I'm going to call it, that's what they are. They're opportunities to catch a wave that people, that that's buzzworthy right now or trending now. And I don't know whether it's a hashtag, like you can use all these opportunities to like hit your, your bandwagon to these, these things that are happening online and you just pay attention to that. And that's, I'm sure that served you guys so well, you know, like, and it's, it's politics, it's politics. I mean, they're meant to, they're big punching bags. It's they're, they're a fair game. Well, it's like a conversation too. Like if you're having a conversation with somebody, you talk about current events, right? So the signs the same way, like we have a schedule of a couple weeks of signs that go out. But then something will happen, and like during the ice storms, it was all ice storm stuff yeah. the whole time, right? Yeah. And so like one of them was like, and they're generally margarita or queso themes. They tie to the Tex-Mex. Okay. So it was like the best way to thaw, thaw out snow is with a little, with like, what was it, uh, tequila, lime, and a little salt, yeah. right? So, so at this time in uh, your, your path... 2012 had you had you shed any restaurants or, or do you still no, own all the restaurants? owned all of them how yeah. many restaurants up to this point was it four is this the fourth that one? was four and five four and five yeah okay so we, uh el royal because there were two locations yes got yeah. it uh and the other thing that we pulled or i pulled just from talking to you during our break is what you do really well at the royal or el royal is the merchandise and all that where was their merchandise when you guys came on? Did they have merchandise? No. They didn't have any merchandise. No. And the thing that blew me away that you mentioned when we were on our break is that El Arroyo does twice as much revenue with its merchandise than it does with the actual food and beverage. Now it does. I mean, the restaurant's growing really fast, too, and they're about to launch a packaged foods line also, but the products company is growing really fast. Okay, so what is it that you guys... Take us through, because you've... And this is how one of the other businesses started is you guys got really good at merchandise and then you started a whole business around teaching other people how to do it. So take us through that journey of getting good at merchandise. Yeah. So I think, you know, so there's a lot of pressure in the, in kind of the swag and merchandise space to hit budgets with it. And so that's really what we came into with the business. And so when we bought it, we focused on turn times, efficiency, low error rate, throughput in the sales department, and stuff that was like nuts and bolts grinding every day. Um, Over time, what we realized is most people are using promotional products completely wrong, right? So if if you're worried about cost and budget for promotional products, it's it's honestly the last thing. It's not unimportant but it is the last hurdle to clear. 
So really, people think about, like, I think a lot of people think they're going to do a merch program, and they, they, they get in, and they launch. They say, everybody's going to buy this stuff. Let's get an online store, and let's throw merch on it. And then it's like, wah, wah. They just end up with a bunch of merchandise that nobody closet, buys. Yeah. And you're like, well, it, I don't know. It worked, at, it worked at the ACDC concert, and you're like, yeah, dude, like, everybody wants to be associated with ACDC, yeah. and you have a core, there's enough, like, like brand champions for ACDC to yeah. buy that merch, right? Yeah. And by the way, they just got through putting on a show where people connected with them. You bought it. You as a brand have to create merch that people are going to connect with, and it's going to be native in their minds to your brand. And so I think people miss on is... Developing a program, merch is an ad, part of your ad spend. Merch is not a revenue center. It can become a revenue center once you become successful with it and once your brand becomes strong enough that outsiders want to come into your brand because of what they see. To just, to just hit that out of the ho- is like walking onto Wrigley Field in the World Series and just smashing a home run or a, or a grand slam your first time at bat from like playing Little League Baseball. Like it just doesn't... It, it's almost impossible to happen that way. So the way I look at merchandise and the people that buy merchandise, and when, when merchandise works well, I've noticed that the, the brand is usually a lifestyle type of brand that people want to be associated with because of what that brand says about them. Right. So if you're a because brand, of the brand position. Exactly. Because if you're – so if, uh, I think a company that does this really well is Laney & Lou in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire. So what they do really well uh, is they develop this brand that says we are about – adventure, wellness, taking care of yourself, all these things that are really important right now with a big chunk of our demographic, right? Everybody wants to be associated with wellness, adventures, uh, they're Insta- anything that's Instagrammable, right? Like, like that world is just, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. So they, they've, they've, they've done so good at making their brand identify with all these things that if you're wearing a Laney and Lou t-shirt, people will look at you and go, that must be an adventurous, healthy, outgoing, fun person. Right. right. And like, and I think that's what the trick is, is how do you associate your brand with something that people want to identify with so they can, it's all psychographics, it's, it's, it's psychographics. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, so, so it sounds like in that case, they have brand voice already, right? Yeah. And so people want to buy the, the merch because it connects them to that brand. So I think where people, where I see people struggle is when they're trying to create, they're trying to use merch to grow their brand voice. Okay. And it's, it's almost like, so the, the chicken cart, before the yeah, egg, the right? Cart ahead of the horse. And then you see people like, I'll give you an example of a bank I work with. And this bank is the, it is a fantastic bank. I won't say it's the, I don't, I don't know, it may or may not be the best bank. It is amazing. They're really good at everything. Their service, the way they treat people, just everything is great. I got like a fake Yeti cup from them. The paint was falling off of it. And I'm thinking like, that is so bad for the brand. That is so inconsistent yeah. with what your brand is. So, like, if your core business, like, you can use branded products to grow your business, to grow your core business. And uh, you may end up with, like, Laney and Lane or, like, what's happened with El Arroyo yeah. where the, the branded products run away. But, but the most important thing is to use them in a way that supports the core business. And that's why it's part of ad spend, not a revenue center. Okay. And you say, so what we, we tell people is, look, let's create a budget for you out of your ad spend, whether it's $2,500 a month, $5,000 a month, $1,000 a month, whatever it's going to be, and let's find products that, that reflect what your brand truly is, both the standard, the uniqueness, the color palette, the quality, 
and and let's put a program together where you buy these you buy this much of these products every month right and we're going to we're going to order them on time every, we're going to have it scheduled out for a few months and so we're going to release the order at the beginning of the month for the next month and it's just going to be on a cycle right and then we'll work you into finding that hat that this speaks to your voice with the logo position that way with the colorways and it, it's it's a programming thing. It's like any, building any other part of your business. Yeah. And then it turns into something profitable a lot of the time. Okay. So I think the big takeaways I'm getting from you is first, be a brand that's worth somebody wanting to be associated with, right? So put your energy into becoming a brand that is that people want to tie themselves to. And then don't look at your... The other big lesson is don't look at this as being a revenue center out of the gates. It's, it's an expense out of the gates. It's an ad spend and it's a, it's a promotional thing. And that's how you have to look at it. Um, those are the big two takeaways. Yeah. And, and then I, it develops and, into a real business sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what do you think? What, Cause you've seen enough of these companies cause you've, you've helped these companies. And it's one of the other companies you built is you help people basically execute their merchandise. Uh, what would you call it? Yeah, they're they're they're, they're, they're branded products programs. Yeah, I mean, so program. we do it for ourselves with El Arroyo and our other businesses, and we help other people. So yeah. the other people that you've seen have a lot of success with your approach. What is it? What's what's the common thread that that these brands have that enable them to have success with your approach? They they buy quality products that reflect positively on their brand, so that people use them all the time and are proud to use them. Okay, right, and so they'll spend the money. And it's not it's not about it. Doesn't mean that it's always. I mean, it, you got to spend the right amount of money. It doesn't mean spend the most money, and it means spend the right amount of money to get the right product that fits the brand voice. Right. So, if the brand voice is a discounter, then you'll, you'll, you're probably going to spend less, right? If it's a super high end brand, or you know, you might spend more. Right? It's, it's it's a different. It's something that fits. So, at what point were you like, "There's an opportunity here so, for us to teach people how to do this"? Well, so with with L, so. L, our promotional products company, Aztec, has traditionally been like a distributor. And as, as we've found more and more success with El Arroyo, we've focused, really, we love doing that. We like helping people grow their brand. So we've decided to spend more and more of our energy with our branded products company taking on relationships where we can help people that are genuinely interested in doing that do it, right? Because yeah. it's fun. Yeah. And it's rewarding. And I think... You've developed skills here, and like, I think that's one thing. If you can be of value to somebody, if you went through something that was hard and you didn't have answers, odds are somebody else is going through the same exact thing. And if you can be of value to those people, that's an opportunity, right? And I think you you're good at figuring things out, and then figuring out things that are hard to figure out, and helping other people figure them out. Is that how you is that how you decide whether or not to build a company? Yeah, I mean, and a lot of times it's just trial and error and stuff, and you learn yeah. and, and through cross pollinating the industry. So, like yeah. in the software business, one of the number one things is called product market fit, right? And it's like getting your product market fit right and then going to market, which a lot of people don't do. They just like raise money and go sell as fast as they can and see what happens, and it ends up pissing customers off. And and sometimes making, it works, and most of the time it doesn't. I'm making a note because I want to get into that because that's the one thing we really haven't unpackaged a, m- a lot yet is the Axial, which is your service as a software SaaS company. Yeah. Um, but we're, def- we're definitely going to get into that. Uh, but the, the product market fit, it, it is important for branding too. It's what you got to think about it. It's like finding the right product that fits the right, the, your brand, right? So it's product market fit, right? How does your product and your market fit together with these branded products? How's your branded product going to tie that together? Yeah. We, during our break, we were talking a lot because we actually ended up moving around. So you have uh, a booth 
for one of your companies, uh, Axial, correct? Yes. For the, the, the software we're going to talk about. Uh, we were talking, the conversation was kind of continued to go as we're like moving things around. I was like, just save this for the, the, the interview because this is good stuff. Uh, but I do want to touch on, because you had a few other brands that we haven't touched on. Because up to this point, you've never closed a restaurant. You've only opened, in, or not opened, but took over restaurants. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're a specialist at being someone's exit strategy. So I think there, we got a lot of great advice out of that. Um, you also have Chickadee. Uh, Abel's North that closed and um, so Chickadee and in Abel's North and Hills Cafe. So that's three additional restaurants from 2013 to 2018 that you either took over or opened yourself or closed. What were the well, situations? Chickadee there? was an apparel company. It made oh, like okay. collegiate branded women's apparel Got and it. that was a client of Aztec. Okay. And then they, they we the ended Aztec up... Aztec is your brand company. Our branded products company. Yeah. And so we took... A, a lot of moving parts. Here. Yeah. So we took a position <laughs> in Chickadee restructured some things principally around financing and inventory control and stuff like that. And then we ended up selling the, the company actually back. Okay. So, um, any, I guess what I want to know is that are there any big restaurant lessons that you learned the hard way before we start talking about the latest opportunity that you identified, which is the service as a software? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's really not even just restaurants. It's any business. People, you know who people, you have a pretty good idea of who people are. Yeah pretty quick normally right and find restaurants a people business obviously there's a lot of people I mean, people say that thinking like there's a lot of people in it but all businesses are people business but it's about the right people mm-hmm. and it's about finding people who want to be there for the right reasons and and investing in those people and trying to develop them as much as you can so that's that's something that i don't i think as you get for people who are somewhat analytical, somewhat technical, it's easy to get buried in the nuts and bolts. I think I think the emotional intelligence is a kind of flip side of that coin. And how are your how are your people delivering those results? Right. So like you can, there's only so much you can do structurally. You've got to develop people to understand the programming so they can execute on that. Got it. That's a lot. <laughs> you got to understand people so you can develop the programming for it. So the, the you got to help those people understand it. You got to they've got to understand the programming. So when you're talking about the programming, because you just dropped a lot of me. Specifically, what are you are you referencing the? What are you referencing? Well, so every business has a program, right? And like, it, what what is your what is your program? What's important to you that your servers deliver to your clients and why or your cooks what's important about the way we played our food or the way we source our Selling food and why like what are you doing yeah like, yeah so, yeah what is the what is the ultimate proposition for our business and okay. do our and do our people understand that and do they understand how you want them to deliver so okay so i think i i understand better now what you're saying is you got to start with who's the end user who are the people and then reverse engineer and say how is this going to relate to them yeah how are we going to get them to buy into what to what this model is that we've created through all this efficiency. And generally, how do you get people to buy in? Communication, I think. I think everybody wants to be a part of something. Yeah. Right? Inherently. I mean, most people are inherently good. The vast majority of people are inherently good. There's a small segment of people who are going to find a way to get it done no matter what. There's a very, very small segment of people who no matter what you do, they're not going to contribute. And then everyone else in between is going to go where the wind's blowing. Mm -hmm. Right? And so... It's finding – they need to understand what the mission is. They need to be able to believe in the mission, right, and care about what they're there to do every day yeah. and feel like they're adding value. Yeah. So once you've figured out what the, the, the unique selling proposition is, whatever that is, whatever it is you, your why is, whatever you're trying to communicate and to who you're communicating it, how do you communicate it? Where do you communicate it? Well, so I think, I think everything is about 
I think there's different learning models for one, and I think there's different frequency, right? So it's like advertising. I mean, you're trying to get essentially it's communication. You're telling, telling a message, and you're trying to get that message delivered and understood. So the message has to be clear and has to be delivered consistently and at high frequency. Okay, and just through traditional channels of communication, I'm assuming email, social media, and it's just so it's just a, a matter of repeated communication, the right communication in the right place. Yeah, and and I think it's even through like I mean you see a lot of you see a lot of really strong cultures doing it where they're doing it with like these like micro team meetings are doing it with chance they got it posted all over their wall. Yeah. You know, it's whatever the mechanism, the delivery mechanism is. I mean, it can vary by business based on who the audience and that bit working that business is. But it's about making sure that there's a clear message delivered about yeah. what the expectations are. Ari Weinswag talks about this a lot in his book, uh, Anarchist, great, uh, Lapsed Anarchist's Approach of Building a Great Business, when he, when he talks about vision. And the whole point of a vision is to be shared. What's the point of having a vision if you're not sharing it? You've got to echo it constantly. You've got to put it everywhere. You've got to repeat it during quarterly meetings. And it's one of those things, and, and this goes with what you're saying too, whatever your why is, whatever your purpose is, whatever that unique selling proposition is, needs to be everywhere. It needs to be off. It needs to be obvious. And it needs to be hitting people across the face. And this is one of the reasons why I always repeat Restaurant Unstoppable's mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. You'll hear it later on. Uh, it's because things need to be repeated so people know why we're here, right? Yeah. Uh, I love that. Um, so I think we've pretty much covered all the things that I want to talk about, except for your service as a software, had that how you know why that was created. We kind of hinted at it a few times because you were wanted to do it, or you're looking for other people to do it, and nobody would. Um, so you said, "Okay, I'll do it myself." But I think we have to talk about what you did in 2020 uh, with to go marks. Yeah, because uh, I'm sure there's lessons here that we can pull. So what are those lessons? Yeah. So El Arroyo, um, El Arroyo was the first one in Texas, as far as I know, doing margarita delivery. Um, and so were you doing it legally if you're the first ones to do it? Like, how does that, yeah, you can't just, I mean, yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We were, um, (laughs) we found it, we found a way to do it very quickly and legally. And it was, um, we were delivering it across the street. Okay. And so there was a law that was passed in you know, that was like passed. It really wasn't necessarily targeting restaurants, but we could squeeze into it. Um, we, so we were, had already designed packaging for our to-go food, we were, for packaged foods business. Got My it. wife had Paige. So she, Paige develops the products and she's kind of the brand, as far as the, the product developing, development person, um, uh, a leader. So she, anyway, she had the margarita packaging together for the most part. And we put a sign on the El Arroyo sign that would be, said now would be a good time to legalize margarita delivery so on our first day after after restaurants got shut down in austin we did 186 dollars in sales and so we we fortunately we kind of saw it coming so on saturday night that night i was kind of looking around at the world and i was like man like i, I don't remember it was like thailand or taiwan or somewhere had shut down and i was like they're gonna do the same thing here and so i called the managers and i said cancel the orders for tomorrow buy exactly what you have to buy to get through Monday. I bet you they're going to shut us down. Yeah. And so, so they did that. We did get shut down. And so we had at least a couple days. You just, whatever article I read, like made me think that and I was lucky to see it. So you didn't waste a bunch of product. You didn't have money sitting on shelves that you couldn't turn. You got rid of it and you emptied out your stock. Yeah. Basically we got low on it and we started to do, so we, we started on the market. There's ever a pending pandemic coming. This is the, this is the advice. Right Look here. at Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. Dude, those guys are ahead of us. Yeah. Um, and so, 
it, so yeah, we got this this package, this margarita packaging together. We put up a sign that said we did one hundred eighty six dollars the first day to go food. And I was like, this is going to be brutal. This yeah. whole industry is toast. Yeah, and so um, or at least that's possible, right? And so. We put up a sign that said, now would be a good day, time to legalize margarita delivery. Of course, everybody went nuts on, in, on social. I'm str- trolling, through the, the, trolling through the feed, and somebody had put, well, it's legal. And I was like, what? So I, we kind of started looking around. We figured out that we could actually deliver it, but like we had to deliver it across the street. Okay. And then so the first day, I got this, this phone call. Um, Wait, so that's the law that it, it – because correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought – wasn't there a huge to-do to make delivery of alcohol legal in the state of Texas well, and you guys won it? So at this point, from what I understand, it wasn't legal. However, if you're doing it this way that you did it, it was. And that in a was, very narrow case, it was legal. And that narrow case was you had to deliver it across the street? We basically had to deliver it. It was, it was, it was in, a law intended for delivery companies, but it didn't specifically exclude restaurants. Okay. So, the, so we just saw the hole and we ran through it. So, And then, and then we... Yeah. So you delivered it across. Was it the, the business across the street or is it a company? A, a we house? just told people to park across the street. We said, we have to deliver it. And so you just can't be here. Okay. We're going to deliver it somewhere. <laughs> you just can't be here. And so okay. it's so all making sense. We now. put up an LR, a sign the next day that said, holy shit, not even kidding. Margarita delivery. Uh, you could put our phone number on it. And that was our first day to launch it. But and if you did this, if you did this two months earlier, it would have been a big issue. They probably would have cracked down. Probably it. somebody would have said, I think people are just like, what are we going to do to these poor bastards? We're just trying to survive. It, you was, know? The, it was survival. Mode, yeah, totally. exactly. And so our, our phones just crashed immediately. Yeah. And so our managers at our other stores, were like, we're going to give this a run at El Arroyo, see what happens. Go get an inventory at the other stores. If we're going to be doing $150 a day, we're probably going to lose all the product. Make sure you get an inventory. So, we need to report an insurance claim we can and i mean i called the managers at the other stores and i was like i need you over here right now and they're like they're like what we're counting the inventory i was like forget the inventory they're like really i was like listen forget the inventory call everyone on your staff who wants to work and tell them to get over here we're making margaritas <laughs> and so everybody rushes over from all the stores we ended up leaving the others shut reemployed all of our people there um and doing to go margaritas and yeah well and the delivery and so we got a phone call yes, from uh thank you for correcting emily me. who runs the restaurant association and i was i was cleaning out one of the liquor stores i had like my phone on a shoulder <laughs> and i was double fisting pints of tequila <laughs> into my basket for these margarita kits and um Wait, and geez. essentially the restaurant association had i mean they they were probably already thinking about it we were we were doing it whatever happened she was like we got to make this legal for the whole state and so the governor's office, same attitude. Governor's office was like, we're going to, we're going to, not only we're going to make this, we're going to make it a clear path to this being very obvious. Like the governor's going to come out and issue a regulatory relief to make it, to make it legal for people to pick it up on the premises and, and make it public that everybody knows they can do this to save restaurants. I love that. It was amazing. And so I'm curious because you said the first day that you did this, you said you made $146. Well, the first day we did to go only was 186. 186. And then we, in that day we put up, now would be a good time to legalize margarita delivery. And that's when we just, so the next day we launched, or maybe this day after that, we launched the, to go. Are you allowed to share how, how you, like how well did you do? 
oh, I don't know. We went from like $186 a day to like 200 grand a week. It was like a- <laughs> All for margaritas. Though. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it was nuts. I mean, we were the like- The power of the sign though, right? And I mean, we as a we as a state almost drank all of the- t- So it had to be in like pints or smaller. Okay. And there's not that many bottles of those. So people were starting to- Distillers were starting to <laughs> bottle it as fast as they could. But we came within like a one day window of drinking all of the pints of tequila in the whole state. <laughs> and that's probably the thing as a Texas I'm most proud of. <laughs> I love that. People, I mean, margaritas, are, but it gave it gave people something to smile about and to have, you know, regardless of your politics, to have a politician say, you know what, like, I'm going to lean into doing whatever I have to do to save my people's jobs was amazing. Yeah. Right. And to have the Restaurant Association decide that they were going to do whatever they had to do to to facilitate that. It was like, I've never seen a group of people... So- react yeah. like and that think, in my life i think there's silver lining to COVID 19 it's it's a testament to what happens when people what we can accomplish in today's age yeah meaning when shit hits the fan and it's going to happen sooner or later we are able to disseminate information and and people can on a dime evolve and switch like look at what like the whole industry literally changed in months six yeah. months you know, and and I think that's really and unfortunately it takes a giant kick in the ass sometimes or like the the th- the threat of like complete annihilation to like get our asses in gear. But it shows that if we have the motive, we need to and we have the information, the resources, we can come together, we can find solutions and we can e- we can evolve, we can transform. Yeah. Right. And totally. we're going to actually have I believe we're going to get Emily on the show. We're going to talk about how she banded together. I think there's 23 different chapters to the restaurant association in Texas. And uh, there are some things that needed to change. I think we'll probably talk about that too. And a lot has changed in that. And just the Texas restaurant association, uh, I think it, it brought people together, but it's also proof that things can change. Right. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Texas liquor laws like don't change. Yeah. I mean, for that to happen like that, to save that many jobs, and it was more than that. It was, I mean, the restaurant association, like it's, it was one of those things where you're like, that was one of the most effective things I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay, like not just the margar- not just the margaritas, although that was a huge deal. It was, it was the margaritas. It was other regulatory relief that got passed. It was letting restaurants move food to the grocery stores, and the voice that was brought and the way it was brought was just, it was just shocking to have a first row seat for. Yeah. I mean, and even the money, like one of the super fun things we did at El Royal, I was super proud of was we had, we had, El, so they launched, the, launched this like restaurant relief fund um, to raise, or not, the, maybe it wasn't the restaurant, Texas restaurant relief fund. Yeah, I think it was even, the, yeah. Anyway, it was, a fun, it was a fund to help restaurants survive. And it was hard to get people to donate to. It was hard to get anybody to pay attention to anything at the beginning of COVID, right? And so we were talking people one day. People were too busy buying toilet paper. Yeah, people were too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so we decided to go uh, to do. A, it was like so. I think El Arroyo might have done the first live stream concert to as a fundraiser during COVID. And then all the big famous people started doing it. Yeah. But we did from the from the El Arroyo sign. We got so Robert Earl Keen is like a super famous Texas country music act. And there's another guy named Shiny Ribs. Okay, and so one of our one of the folks on our team is friends with the with the Keen family, and so they they. Robert Earl was like, we're like, hey, listen, we need to help them get this fundraising started. So we're going to do a live stream fundraising concert from the El Arroyo sign to raise, to kick this thing off. And Robert Earl's like, 
Yeah, I'll throw in on that. I'll do it. <laughs> nice. And Shiny Ribs is like, oh, hell yeah, I'm in. And I'm going to go yeah. get a bunch of other guys. So they went and round up like 12 famous country music artists. And we raised like, it was like 30 grand or something, That's 27 awesome. grand. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was from thousands of people. And then yeah. all these big companies were like, the restaurant association people were like, you need to throw in too. And they had raised like three and a half million dollars and they had raised some before that, but we helped. It was, it felt good to be able to contribute and participate in it. And it, and it was just the way they leveraged us and other members to, to take the opportunities that were there to help the whole community was awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. And I'm looking forward to unpackaging more of, of how the TRA handled all of this because they, they did a really like knockout job um that's going to come out but i do i'm looking at the time here i'm, I'm losing track of time because i'm really enjoying our conversation uh we do get to talk about uh axial um so what was going on in your business where you needed a solution and what was your solution and like how does how did that become its own company yeah so we had so we had built our own little internal restaurant software just to just to you know, take the fray off the edge a little bit and a couple of things. What but, was the paint? What was going on? The, the, the edge off of what? Well, so man, we we just wanted to consolidate information a little bit. But after after a while, like you kind of look up and restaurant managers were using like seven different pieces of software. Okay, right. And so, in use a gap between like coming up in restaurants, you had these restaurant managers that were super experienced, the GMs, and a lot of times you even had office staff yeah. in restaurants to support. And as margins got compressed and restaurant and, and it became more and more competition, office staff went away and you started to see younger and younger managers coming into the industry. And what these people desperately needed was people to invest in their knowledge on how to run a restaurant, yeah. how to run service, not how to make spreadsheets. Incidentally, they're a lot more comfortable with computers mm-hmm. than, than a lot of the people who'd come up who were previously in the industry, right? In those roles, the general managers that yeah. they were working for, right? Yeah. And so you see this gap where they're like the admin managers in the office all the time and the general managers, you know, just on the board, and then they get pushed into general manager roles. They don't really know how to run a restaurant and not through any fault of their own. They just haven't been positioned that way. And so yeah. we thought, you know what, like, what if we eliminate everything that isn't a core function to running a restaurant from their admin duties? Give me some examples of what those those. Well, so like be. making a nightly email, right? Sitting there and like transposing information from a point of sale system to like this year's sales, last year's sales, this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah. it's just not a good use of time, yeah. right? And so that's that's still necessary with a lot of POS What's systems. What's another example? And then even merging in like shift notes with that and all the things they do. Uh, you know, merging that in like tracking vendor. So essentially, the, you know, we said, look, we just want our manager, we want to drive sales and reduce turnover. Those are the two things we want to contribute, yeah. right? And we want a bit, we want to happen in our stores. We want our managers to be able to run restaurants and not feel like they've got to work 70 hours a week doing yeah. it, right? They need to be able to like have a family, live a normal life and, and work a reasonable number of hours and deliver at a high level, Got it. right? Which are too, juxtaposed in so, most... Restaurant. And your solution, it sounds like up to this point, is eliminating the things that we no longer need to do because there's a technological solution for that. Yeah, like let's use technology where it can be used. And then at the same time, let's develop these people. So a lot of times, I mean, it takes people like five years to learn to read a P&L, right? Yeah. If you show it to them monthly. It takes repetition, right, to gain understanding. And still, if you're reading a monthly P&L and there's three managers, how do you know what your real role in that is? Yeah. Right, but there's the data generally available to run a nightly PNL on an automatic basis. Yeah, and so our idea was take this nightly email that they're building, eliminate it, but also eliminate them having to do it, but also expand it to essentially be a nightly PNL that gives them context. So 
what we've discovered is if you share information with people at high frequency and in context and it's relevant to them, they're going to capture it. Yeah. Right? And they're going to grow really fast. So really what you're doing is trying to streamline the process of getting the information and communicating it in a way that isn't just a bunch of numbers, but there's context involved. Yeah. And then helping people put controls around. So we're, we're trying to drive sales and reduce turnover by investing in the people. Okay. And so everybody at every leg- level of a restaurant organization has the ability to contribute more if they're, if they're aware of what their contributions are and you're sh- helping them understand okay. how they can improve. So that, that, I think you just answered the question I had. And originally I was thinking to myself, it sounds like you're just streamlining a process and you're really saving money with eliminating work because there's software to, to, to do that. But what you're doing is you're using that information to paint a picture of the, I guess the, the health of your, your business and you're communicating the health of your business and you're also communicating what your efforts and how your efforts affect the health of your business. Yeah, that- so there's lots of different, th- yes, and there's lots of ways we do that. So like we have a mobile app that they run in real time and it shows them sales right now versus the three-year historical average for the same day of the week up to the same time yeah. in for last week. But there's three ways people learn, like generally. People want benchmarks to work against. They learn graphically or, they, or they're data-driven, right? And so everything we represent is in context of historical performance or the plan that they've set out in the case of labor or purchasing. And, and we represent it with a benchmark. Here you're doing better than expectation by this much percentage of green arrows, red arrows down, green arrows up. You're doing better than expectation against the benchmarks. And graphically, here's how you perform against historical performance or your plan. And then here's the raw data, what that looks like. So you're gamifying. We're gamifying. We're capturing the different learning types and positioning it so people understand what their contributions are. And when people know what their contributions are, they can manage their performance. And they can self-manage. And even when you – so that's for the managers. For the employees, we show them their total sales, their sales per hour, their credit card tip percentage, their check average, key metrics, right? But then we show them – where they rank relative to their peers over the last two weeks is their current rank. What about relative to themselves in the past? And, well, and we can chart them out relative to everyone else over the last four periods. Okay. So they can see how their, their performance is moving relative to average. Yeah. And then, and, and then they can use that to grow. And we, we, our whole thing is like you never humiliate somebody. Yeah. You show – so when they see where their rank is personally – but when they click into it, they can see the everybody else, but only the people who are above average. Okay. So if there's 14 servers, you'll see the top seven servers and their ranks and their yeah. data. But then below average, you don't know like if I'm if I'm one place out of the average or last place. You don't yeah. know that, right? Yeah. I know that when I log in, I can see that I'm in last place or I'm one place out, but nobody else can see it. So and so the goal is if I make everybody want to be above average, and I help them see who else is above average, so they can model behaviors after yeah. what those people are doing. Everybody's trying to be above average. Average moves. Everybody's the servers are making more money. The restaurants make more money. Customers having better guest experiences. So when did you start working on this? So I I spent basically 2014 and 2015 trying to talk a couple other software companies into doing it. One of them was just like, look, we're just trying to get on the internet. And another one was like doing something else. The the, the board didn't agree. Like, Was this Swipely by any chance? No. I'm not going to say who they are, but one of the founders wanted to do it. And, and, and the, some of the board members were trying to... There, everybody was going different directions. Because it, so, it sounds very like what you're describing sounds similar to what is now Upserve. Swipely was doing with just getting that data and using that, that performance. So I guess my question is how... 
how is what you're doing differently? Because with Swipely and Upserve, I think it was a whole suite of tools you needed that captured that data. Um, but what were you using? I mean, I guess is it like what is what you're doing? How is that different from like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Upserve or Swipely? Sure, doing, but yeah, is I mean, it similar to what the, the, that data they have and well, everybody's performance and stuff? so everybody's got a lot of that data. Yeah, it's it's not it's not the data; it's how you instigate action using the data okay so what our our platform is designed around like our platform has been iterated and iterated and iterated i mean dozens or hundreds of times in some cases some interfaces to cause the people using it to take action that delivers a result right and that and that has exactly it's about it's it's a mix of psychology and analytics and education yeah and then operation. So it's, it's technically, I guess, an operating platform where we're, we start with stripping the data from the POS and then feeding it back. And then we help people. Like, so when they go to benchmark, when we go to benchmark our, our sales projections, we're looking at our historical averages and our last week and all that. And then it's very quick to estimate your numbers. And then you're looking at historical labor and everything else. It's very quick to estimate that. When you make your schedule, the, the platform has a schedule in it. It has the projections in it. Yeah. When you make your schedule, it tells you you're on budget this day, you're off budget this day, et cetera. And then when you publish your schedule, it goes out to everybody. You can, you know, you can, it, it almost, I hate the word democratizes because yeah. I think it's like one of those big words that people just kind of like throw into conversations to make it sound cool. And it, but it like, it, it takes the data, it allows the employees a, a level of control over their own life. Okay. Right. So they have all the shift swapping and stuff like that, but they can even look at their own punches and if one of their punches isn't right, they can put in a request and it'll push notify the manager who can then update, approve or deny it. So there's no more like 1 p.m. on a Saturday, you're in the middle of the brunch rush and somebody scratches down on a piece of stained receipt paper. I got here at 11 and pushes it at you. Okay. And then shockingly, the manager forgets to update it and then the paycheck <laughs> comes out wrong and then the employee thinks the manager doesn't care about them. Right. And that kind of stuff only gets to happen one or two, three times before the employee's like, they don't I'm care about here. me here. I'm out of here. Yeah. And that turnover creates a negative cultural. And so every, everything has an effect, right? Yeah. And so by creating a culture where the employees have good feedback all the time and they have a consistent expectation that they have some level of influence over, reduces turnover. So yeah. we issued almost half the number of K-1s in the first year we implemented it wow. versus the previous year. So how many years have you been implementing it now? Well, so we started in 2016 on our okay. own restaurants. Yeah. And then in 2017, I got introduced to a friend who was, who was a real estate guy who was like a main investor in a restaurant group and the operator took off and he ended up like, hey, I'm in the restaurant business now. And so I was like, we're not really ready, but you can be our beta customer and I'll help you. Yeah. And so I had a lot of late night phone conversations coaching him into turning into a restaurant tour. And then we went in and we tested this platform and, and it took us like, I mean, the first one we installed took us like three days to get it installed in a store. Now it's like less than an hour. That's awesome. But we took, we took a few years to get to where the installations were so fast that they would be like, like we could essentially, people could register, put their name, email, install. And then when they installed, it automatically finds their files on their, on their POS and boom, it uploads it all. It sets your whole system up. And that was the experience we wanted because we wanted to be able to we wanted our customers to be treated like we wanted to be treated as restaurateurs. So everything we do, even like, even like the way we position our pricing, the way we, the way we sell, like even the way we do our trials, like we do, we do a second, we have two levels of our platform. One just feeds people the data that's already there and helps influence behaviors. The second helps them put controls in place. The level one requires they do nothing. Just they just, the they just consume, right? Yeah. 
the level two requires a little bit of action. So we even we even when people upgrade to level two, we give them another trial window that's thirty days free to just get them implemented because we don't like charging people before they're getting the benefit of it. So you're getting the the, the the data from level one, which is spits out the information. Level two, what exactly do you need to do? What is the action that the, the restaurant court needs to take? Well, that's where they onboard all their employees to okay. use to use the app, and that's where they start setting up projections and schedules. And then, Profiles? Does every employee have like a profile, basically? Mm-hmm. And they can do employee docs and stuff, and they can onboard everybody through it. And they have, and they have their scheduling in there. It's where they... And then they do all their, like, they purchase tracking so they can upload invoices. So we got to set their vendors up. It still doesn't take very long. It takes, like, maybe an hour a store to get somebody set up. But we just like for them to have a period to adopt it and let it make them money. And then we charge them because, like, that's the way we would want to be treated. So if we're we're interested in what you're sharing with us right now, like, what things do we already need in place before we can invest in your asset? What would somebody need to use Axial? So, like, yeah, like, like, is there a certain POS that needs to be in place? Do you only integrate with certain POS? Yeah, so we started with Aloha because it was the biggest one in the market. And then we've now we're doing Square. Okay. And then there's a series of behind that that we're integrating to. So, uh, Square for restaurants? Yes. Okay. Uh, Not the, the smaller rendition of square right square for restaurants which which we like because we think there's a gap in the marketing between you you know between in-store and e-commerce and back to our branded products experience we want to be able to tie those experiences together and use axial to help with that and can i make any introductions it sounds like you know a lot of people but i feel like i can maybe introduce you to a few more pos companies i'm happy to do it sure yeah Um, happy to yeah is there anything we haven't touched on yet or, I mean, I think we should probably let people know, like, we are interested in this and we are using Square. Uh, how do we reach out? Um, so, our website's axialcommerce.com. It's A-X-I-A-L-C-O-M-M-E-R-C-E. I'm not, cutting you, I'm not cutting you short, am I? As far as the things you want to unpackage with that, because I feel like there's so much more we could probably talk about. But I also, I know, I want to respect your time, too. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're not, no you're not cutting me short. I mean, no. there's a ton there, and I love talking about it, obviously. Yeah. I get excited. I mean, there's and tons I, of passion, man. And it sounds really interesting. I love that you're leaning into. I think that's the future is to one of the biggest lessons I've learned is, is business is just about relationships. With, it's, it's relationships with everybody you come in contact with. And software is all going to evolve just to kind of be an extension of who we are. That's the direction we're going. And it's, it's the end. Like we talked about, like you got to understand the end user and then reverse engineer it. And the, we are the end users. You know, like we, the, the, not just like how we identify, but how we function as human beings. You know, we're learning more and more about human behavior. Every year we're unpackaging more about us. And it's making us able to fine tune and tweak these technologies to serve us even better and better and better. And it's amazing where we're headed. Um, and it seems like it seems like you know that, right? And you, and you guys are taking, I don't want to say taking advantage, but leaning into it, you know? Yeah, I mean, if there's anything, I think if there's anything the restaurant industry learned from COVID, yeah, it's that your people are everything. Yeah, and people, especially as you're coming back and people are having tr- trouble getting staff, like it's and it's like the Mr. Miyagi thing. Like I don't remember exactly the quote, but essentially it was like the easiest way to not get kicked in the face is not be standing there when the kick comes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like the 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 whole thing is like. People want to have a role. They want to be developed, and they want to feel like they're growing. Yeah, and and that's our thing with Axel. It's like if you can if you can give them that, it will drive the sales and it will reduce the turnover. I love it. And it's not like it's not magic. It's just it's just treating people the way people want to be treated. Yeah, and and we're, we can we we are more flexible than ever before in order to, to evolve and use tools and technologies to do that. It's really cool stuff. Uh, I'm, I love this conversation. The last question I ask all my guests before we go to the speed round, the speed round is fast, so don't worry. Uh, but the mission statement is to inspire, empower, 
and transform the industry. So how have you transfer, transformed personally? Who are you today versus the man you were when you got into this industry? Aside uh, from being a teenager. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I've got a lot of gray now. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, despite only being 40, got a lot of gray coming in. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I think, I, I think the main thing is kind of really back to what we were just talking about. I've learned, I've learned the importance of focusing on people and investing in people. And I think that that's, you know, um, I, w- I would like to say that I, that I learn really fast. Sometimes I learn by doing things the hard way too many times, you know, and I, I think that, I think it's really easy when you get in the weeds to discount, to just like try to get the mission executed and get super focused on, on just an intense execute. But really it's about, it's about the people and it's about growing the people and growing the organization. And that's what an organization is. It's a yeah. group of contributors working together to common goal i love the idea of your job as a restaurateur is to create opportunity for others and that's what it's all about right yeah and that's what i'm hearing from you yeah it's, it's, it, and that that's 100 it uh, i've loved this conversation one more quick break to thank our sponsors we'll be right back for a true speed round Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work, let's be honest. Not to mention, it's time-consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing, and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? Not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long 
about lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think you might have just said it before off air. <laughs> going in a lot of different. Oh directions. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, go, going. Uh, yeah, I'd say in intense intensity of interest. Yeah, and you know it's weird because sometimes I've learned that certain lessons, like one, like somebody's advice to me, be like, do one thing really well, and like that's my advice. But other people would say, like, you know, just like be a student of everything. And I think it, it all depends on who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Is and and that's one of the things I, I get stressed. Yeah, because like you, you always hear these people saying, this is the way, this is the solution, this is how you do it. And it's all bullshit because there is no one way to do it. And it all the friggin' depends. And yeah. like, that's one of the other big lessons I've learned with this podcast. But I love that because it's so, it's kind of counter, counterintuitive. Sure. But I also answered the question. Like most you. things are correct or counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Biggest weakness is probably. Well, over committing and helping helping people that maybe should be trying to help themselves. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team when you're doing the interview? What are you looking for? Uh, con- con- contributor. I look for somebody who's there to contribute. What is your biggest challenge today? I would say scaling team is just always finding the best people. And how are you overcoming it? I mean, grad. It just takes time. Gradually. I mean, the bigger the bigger we get, the more interesting people show up in our life, right? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act. I would say. I would say empathetic is like emotional intelligence is probably the most important can you teach that i think everybody i mean it's i don't think it's one of those things you have or don't have i think everybody's got some element of every yeah. kind of intelligence i think it's got to be developed mm-hmm. yeah and uh daniel pink not daniel pink um daniel goldman the author of emotional intelligence talks about this is absolutely something that you can train into people some people think you have it or you don't i like some people are more naturally inclined to it than others but i agree with you that it can't be taught uh what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner so i think one of the most important books for me early on was the e-myth that's gonna be one of our books coming up in the the book club uh but why that book i i think it's to your point about counterintuitive and you know I feel like most 
management related or business related topics are counterintuitive for most people. And I think the E-Myth does a good job of setting clear and reasonable expectations for people so they can make good decisions about, I guess, first, whether they want to do it in the first place. And secondly, how, how to go about doing it. I think, I think yeah. it's a great influence for Yeah, people. the E-Myth stands for the Entrepreneurial Myth. It's on Audible. If you guys are not using Audible, I highly recommend it. Uh, auto, if you go to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable, you can get your first book on us. We also earn $15, so thank you in advance if you do that. And uh, we are launching our first book club. I just mentioned it briefly. Um, and we're reading Atomic Habits right now. We have two more months before we move on to the next book. We haven't decided on the next book, but if you want to be a part of a book club, that the whole intention of this book club is to go deep and to implement the lessons in our life. We're not just trying to chew through books. We're implementing lessons. So hit me up if you're interested, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. The next question I have for you is what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? I think there's a, I just, I think financial literacy is a big gap. I think planning is a big gap. Mm-hmm. I think people are tend to try to get through, just get through the week, get through service because I think they're time constrained and they've got to prioritize. I think I think that's a big opportunity to to improve on planning and financial literacy generally. Name one service you've hired or outsourced. Something that you realize you don't do as good as somebody else, so you hire another company to do it for you. Um, we hire all kinds of services. We use maybe not because it's something we can't do as well, but we hire Bevinco as is somebody we use because it's. It's more about an interest alignment thing. I think that there's... Um, what is Bevinco? Bevinco is a third-party liquor inventory service. Got it. And what, what were you saying about interest alignment? I just I think that there's... If somebody's going to be measured on inventory performance, you are... You are at, and you're going to ask them to measure their own inventory and turn it in. It's not to say that people can't do it honestly, but there is an inherent, an inherent misalignment of interest. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I can back that up. And that is a technology because they use scales, right? They come in and they weigh everything. Mm-hmm. Isn't that our approach? Uh, the next question is a technology, but we'll get another one out of you. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your restaurant uh, that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? I have a feeling I know which one you're going to say. Axial commerce. <laughs> yes. This is the last question. Are you ready for it? Because it's a doozy. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Is that duct tape in the distance? Yeah, I think it was duct tape <laughs> being ripped up. I was like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> three pieces of wisdom to be left behind. I would say invest in your invest in your team and in, one. In, invest in your family. Is that one or two? Uh, no, well, your te- team and the, the restaurant, and then your family. I mean, I, I think I think people need to be able to need to be able to maintain family relationships, and and I think they need to prioritize that and position themselves at work so that they can do that. I love it. So um, that's one, right? Well, and then and then develop the team around you as far okay. as the work team. And what's the third one? Um, I, I would just say like find a way to set it up so you're smiling. Mm. You know, I mean, it's like it's only one life right you gotta enjoy yeah. it while you're there i made we have fun one of my core values in the restaurant unstoppable network just because you need something to remind you that it's all supposed to be fun right? yeah i love no it. doubt great way to wrap this thing up and we uh we call out a guest at the end of every episode that's how i find future guests for the show and i really want it to be organic i really want the the people who are doing the we 
people in this industry know the people in this industry. And we, we aspire, we admire what other people are doing. And I really want Restaurant Unstoppable to be a place where we can start referring people doing really great stuff. So if this person, think of a person. If this person was on the show, you, you would absolutely be listening to that episode. Who is that person? Call them out to be a future guest on the show. Roberto Espinosa. Roberto, look out. I'm coming after you. Taco Deli. I'd love to get you on the show. I think I, I spoke to his partner. Eric? Yes. I would love to get Roberto on the show. I think his, I think I have a, I, I know somebody there, so I can make that happen. They're awesome. fantastic humans. Yes. I would love to get another representative Taco Deli on the show. And how can we connect with you? If we've really enjoyed today's conversation and we want to connect with you, maybe we have more questions uh, or what we, maybe we're interested in Axial. What, what's the best way to connect? Sure. Um, probably email Ellis at axialcommerce.com or Ellis at com. Yep. Awesome. And we'll have that in the show notes. This is episode. I'm not sure what episode number this is, but make sure you stick around to the closing thoughts. I'll be sure to have the episode number there. And uh, I just cannot say thank you enough, Ellis. This has been a really great chat. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Awesome. Thank you. There we go. Another one in the archives here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys found value from today's conversation. I know I did, Ellis, man. Such great stuff. Uh, I, I think what was unique that I really enjoyed from today's conversation was this mentality of just finding legacy brands, finding you know companies that have that solid brand, that have that legacy, and just getting in there and, and working on the culture and what 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 can happen when you flip a restaurant's culture. Such great stuff. Uh, so many cool things happening over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Ellis Winstanley is in the network, and we are looking to block time with him. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, be sure to join the network and to keep your eyes on the events tab to see when he'll be joining us to do pure mentoring in the network. Also, this week in the network, we're having our second session of Atomic Habits uh, book club. Well, it's not the Atomic Habits book club, but it's at the Restaurant Unstoppable book club. And the first book we're covering is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And we're going to be doing three sessions each book, the first Monday of each month. So basically one book a quarter. And the purpose of this book club, this book club isn't to... Uh, read a book and say we you know we read the book let's move on to the next one it's to really dig into these books to hold each other accountable and to you know implement the lessons in these books in our businesses in our lives so if that's interesting to you then come hang out today at noon actually is the second session so if you're listening to this episode early and you've read the book and you want to be a part of the conversation again join restaurant unstoppable network.com uh, later in the week we have a workshop on Tuesday, so tomorrow, if you're listening to this, at 5 p.m., we are having Ethan Falk, the CEO of Virtual Restaurant Group and Late Night Munchies, come to talk to us about ghost kitchens from ghost kitchen startup all the way to ghost kitchen franchising if that's something that's interesting to you he's actually has an opportunity to join a ghost kitchen franchise if you if you're interested in that so that will be on tuesday and on thursday we were supposed to have jim laub and joe erickson from restaurantowner.com join us to talk about business planning 101 but they said you know eric why don't you just go to the source we went to stephanie robinson uh who is a cornell professor who has spent her career with Cornell basically focusing on 
uh, teaching courses in hotel and restaurant development and design and performing research on how hospitality environments affect user perception and behaviors. And she's going to be hopefully fingers crossed taking their place because that's where they went to, to put together their business plan template. Uh, so we're going to go straight to the source as well. And hopefully we're actually figuring out when we're going to do that because we did that last second change. So stay tuned to be a part of that conversation. All right. That's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around this long until next time. Peace out.